still remembers Pampiro Furpo? Who booked the screw job in Montreal? Who has a good friend named Weasel Dooley? Everyone knows it's corny. Who managed Bobby Eaton and Condry? Who managed Stan Lane and Dr. Tom? Who's sick and tired of Kenny Olivier? Everyone knows it's corny. Who took a shoot, fought off of the scaffolding? Who bled a gusher in a white suit? Who said Ronnie Garvin went up like the challenger? Everyone knows it's corny. It's Jim Cornette's drive through He'll answer questions from you And he won the pony too Thank you, fuck you, bye 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 Hello again, friends! And you are our friends And welcome back to another edition of Jim Cornette's drive Through right here It's the end of summer 2022 And that's it I'm your host, the great Brian Last. We have, I don't know what we have, to be quite honest with you. I think we have questions. I think we'll get to them. We, I know we have questions. I think we'll get to them. But you never know what road we will go down. Perhaps another summer camp nightmare, we will find out. But here he is, your head counselor and the star of the drive-thru, Mr. Jim Cornette. Brian, you're just flabbergasted to be back on the program after your unscheduled absence. And you're just, you're, you, as Aunt Lola used to say, you're all flibberty gibbet. You just don't know what to do with yourself here. You're just, you're thrilled. You're, you're tickled. I can, I can hear the, the jocularity in your voice to be back here on your program after last week's unscheduled uh, uh, departure. Sounds like something Bill Watts would say. You can hear the jocularity in his voice, Boyd, when yeah. you talk to him in the back. <laughs> he just loves the locker room and telling jokes. Ah, he's not whistling Stranger in Paradise, that's for sure. So it's your program. Have you got a big show for us this week to make up for last week when you you left everybody hanging, everybody was upset, thought, my God, has Cornette gone crazy? Is he, has he and the great Brian last split up? No, it was just a momentary, a momentary fill-in type of thing while you attended to other business, but we set the podcasting world ablaze with uh, speculation of what was going on. At least we're right out front of it with everybody. All this other speculation going on about all these other issues and problems that people have, well, there's a lot to that, but we're right up front with everybody. That's so everybody right. knows what's going on. And once again, I want to say thank you to Lou Kippelman for sitting in for me last week. At the last minute, he pinch hit. He had a great job, and I really do appreciate it. And the rumors are true, just to get it out there here at the top of the show, Kenny Omega removed me from last week's episode. That You know, it, it was going to come out sooner or later. It really was. You know, there's been scuttlebutt and speculation Finger pointing, if you will. <laughs> uh, of all things, from Kenny Omega, some things. finger pointing? <laughs> well, you know, as Leap and Lanny once said, when you point a finger at somebody, you got three more pointing back at you. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about all the, the fingering going on here in the wrestling business later on on the program. But I got to say, I, you know what I did this weekend? I went out in public again. I ventured out in the great contagious unknown. 
You know, I was, I think it was it Kippelman that I was mentioning this to last week. I said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go out in public again. You never know what's going on. You got people now with COVID. You got people spreading the monkey pox around. You got people just randomly opening fire and shooting at people for no reason. I said last, last month here in Louisville, this fucking guy was his, his excuse was he was, he had taken a, a pain pill, a hydrocodone and was so sleepy. He couldn't make that left turn, turn left on a sidewalk, run a whole goddamn family down, just idly strolling down fourth street or wherever it was downtown. As you never know who's out there that voted for Trump. You never know what kind of danger you could face. But I'm going out in public. That's what I and I did it, Brian. I'll have you know I did not reveal where I was going because let's. Well, I didn't want the extra security and and have to put a burden on the police force downtown trying to keep the crowds back from seeing one of my rare public appearances. So I just slipped in like the regular folks, right? And it was it was very enjoyable. I went to the because you know I, I mentioned it was Stacy's birthday this past Monday. She turned 30 again. And for that, she had wanted to see the, the Van Gogh's uh, uh, exhibit. Have you, have you heard about this? Have you, have you read about this, Brian? It's going all over the country. I have, actually. I'm a big fan of Van Gogh. Have you got an autograph of Van Gogh? I an do. 8 by 10 <laughs> or any, Did you ever belong to the Van Gogh fan club when you were a kid? I don't, but one of the coolest things I've gotten lately is the Starry Night Lego where you actually get to build Starry Night, and then you have a little Van Gogh painting it. A little, a little twelve-inch Van Gogh sitting at the piano, and but the genie was hard of hearing, and I got a twelve-inch pianist. Anyway, so the Van <laughs> Gogh exhibit, yes, is uh, it's traveling the country, and it stopped in Louisville here for a few months. It was downtown at the convention center, and I'm thinking, okay, this is an indoor thing because it's a hundred degrees outside, but at the same time, it's one of these giant convention halls, you know, as, as you see in the major cities, of which Louisville is, I guess, technically one. And it's big and it's spacious. And, you know, it's not like it's going to be, I'm going to be crammed up with people. So we, we went out amongst them. And it's, it's a great deal. They, um, you know, on the commercials, they really, they cultured it up. They really made it sound, you know, because they had the guy, the English guy doing the voiceover experience the Van Gogh, blah, 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 right? It sounded like Sebastian Cabot. And then when we get there, the actual greeter, the per first person that talks to you and tells you the, the gist of the thing is like a part-time fast food clerk from Shepherdsville. But, you know, so we didn't get, you know, a, a Bentley to, to give us the preface. But otherwise than that, you go in and they've got... Uh, it's a multimedia exhibit, as they say, but they've got three different rooms. And the first one you walk through and there are these giant hanging posters with art and quotes from Van Gogh and or interesting antidotes, as they say, about his life and career. And they glossed over, they referred to it as the ear incident. They glossed over the reason. And I actually, we saw, we met a couple of the listeners down there guy named Zach and his lovely better half and, and uh, another guy named Sean. And I was mentioning to Sean, he came up and introduced himself. I said, you know, they glossed over the ear incident. They just said that he got mad at so-and-so at the other artist and 
and cut off his ear. And then you go to the next square and after the ear incident, they just, you know, I, I figured you'd get a, a poster or two on the ear incident because I need to, I need more clarity on that. But anyway, after you go through that, then you go through the, uh, you know, some of the, the paintings and, and et cetera that are hung up and displayed and more details. And then you get to the big room and they have, it's a goddamnest thing. I don't know how they figured out how to synchronize this, but they have a multiple projector apparatus set up that you're in this giant room that they have made out of basically screens, white screens. And it projects from the ceiling. And you know me, I've television production, shit like that. I'm staring up at the, everybody else is looking at the Van Gogh paintings coming to life on the walls. And I'm staring up at the projector apparatus and now they've got this thing wired up. But basically it projects not only the paintings onto these giant wall screens, but it actually paints them at the time. You see them from bare sketch and then the color comes in. And then they start moving and birds fly around them. Riddle was there. Uh, Orangutans and giraffes came out of his ass. Is it Riddle or is it an anime sim dating? I'm not sure what you're talking um, about. I don't, well, I, you know, I didn't get a chance to take the tank to the library, so I'm not sure. what That line, for whatever reason, got over <laughs> with people. <laughs> but but anyway, so and it, it it's on the walls and the floor, and if you stand in front of the screen, then you have Van Gogh painting across your face in certain, you know, uh, angles and everything. So that was cool, and it, and it it it's all different, and it evolves and etc. So you stand in there for a while and watch that, and then you realize you kind of you get to the same place you came in, and then you you depart. But that was that was very very cool. And Stace, because she paints, you know, she got. Uh, tips out of it because you because the brush strokes are like goddamn three feet long on this giant wall so you can kind of it's like a up close look at his technique so i expect um as soon as she learns to forge his signature i expect that we're going to be entering a higher income bracket but that was very nice you should take the kids to see van gogh maybe i will why don't you? Maybe I will. You know, my grandmother had one of her friends who's an artist. This is one of the coolest things. My grandmother, whenever she wanted a painting, and it was like, you know, I'm not going to go buy that one. She would just send her friend to paint it, and she would sign her name. So I have, like, these amazing paintings by Rose Myers. <laughs> <laughs> that look incredible, but she didn't forge them. She just saw it's her interpretation of the other thing. There's the noted painting Whistler's Mother by Rose Myers. <laughs> A uh, highly sought-after collection available in the finest galleries. But th well, that was the first half of, of Birthday Sunday. But the second half was actually, well, to my estimation, was a little bit better. Stace picked the place, but you know me and food. We went to the Brazilian steakhouse, and just I ate like I was going to the chair because you know I'm not in the restaurants very often anymore. So, but in this case, again, it's Sunday afternoon. We picked perfect time. It's Sunday afternoon. Nobody, 4th Street Live is completely dead. And there was like six other people in the place and, and they just kept coming by and just dropping food off willy-nilly at random at our table until we were stuffed. And then we came home and enjoyed a nice evening of watching television. By the way, and that's someone's knocking at the door. That's uh, the contractors are working again today. You know, this is a permanent 
lifetime thing now that I have this remodel is now what do they call it in the medical profession? It's a manageable condition, but it'll be with you for the rest of your life. Anyway, speaking, of, you know, it's birthday season, Brian, because we just got finished with uh, Stacy's birthday and mine is coming up on that red letter day, Saturday, September 17th. And you know what that means. What Please tell mean? me you know what that means. You're going back to the Brazilian steakhouse? No, no. That means that Saturday, September 17th is the day that everybody in the world has the opportunity to buy me a birthday gift and get a fabulous gift in return. The most amazing marketing strategy of all time, the brand new action figures from Figures Toy Company. They have arrived from China. And go on sale at jimcornette.com on Saturday, September 17th at noon Eastern, my birthday. And the deal is simple. No more do you have to wonder about what to get me for my birthday. Just log on to jimcornette.com, buy an action figure for my birthday, and I'll send you that action figure absolutely free. It works perfect. Autograph to your specifications. This is one of the most amazingly synergistic marketing opportunities where everybody it's a win-win everybody prospers and not only do we have the monday night raw debut event suit my pink and red where i was accosted by bobby heenan on that fateful night in july of 1993 uh there's going to be a little bit less than 1500 of them these will not be redone this is the run of these they will never be reproduced in the future so if you want me in my official Monday Night Raw pink and red debut suit, coming complete with glasses, microphone, tennis racket as well now that I'm popular and I get my own way around this place, then you got to log on, as the kids say, on Saturday, September 17th. And for Christmas, whether it's for a friend or an enemy, I can say either Merry Christmas or Bah Humbug, the brand new Christmas variant revamped from the original version. We've switched the red and green colors around. We've added the glasses, the racket, the microphone, and I am wearing a beautiful festive holiday Santa hat. Santa Corny can come down your chimney for Christmas. There's less than 1,500 of those. And this is the last Christmas variant we're going to produce of any type, these or otherwise. We're making the collector's items, folks. So Get them while they're hot, jimcornette.com, Saturday, September 17th at noon Eastern. They go on sale, but this week, Thursday, September the 1st, if you go to jimcornette.com, hopefully, I'll get to that in a minute, on the homepage, you will see uh, banners and pictures describing what I've just talked about, and, and you can see these fine figures from the wonderful folks at Figures Toy Company. And I said, hopefully, because we got to mention, we talked about thanking Kippelman for standing in last week. We've also got to thank our guest artists for the YouTube channel for contributing in the wake of, uh, you know, I, I broke the news, Travis Heckle, back on the injured reserve list. He's been sick with that unfortunate condition. He's got the, the premature, uh, the, I'm sorry, the projectile premature ejaculation. That's not his condition. Come on. Well, that's what I was told by the finest <laughs> medical staff at the University of Louisville Sexual Therapy Clinic. 
Really? They called got, you or you reached out to them? How did this happen? The, well, I called to check on him. I'm because he's he's an employee of the organization here. I'm allowed to check. It's a friends and family plan down there at the Dick Clinic. They just and they said he say got, fuck HIPAA. They just friends and family. Well, friends and family. If you know anybody that's that's uh, got an interest in whether his premature projectile ejaculation is cured or not. Because he's, he's got to have two good eyes as an artist, and he's already almost put one out. Because that thing will go off in the drop of a hat. If you drop a hat, watch out. For projectiles. Around Travis, at least. So anyway, we thank the guest artists, uh, and get well soon, Travis. And I mentioned also the reason why, hopefully, because in the same week, Hotchkiss Featherbottom is now living in the basement so that he does not pass on whatever he has to Fanny and Felcher. And it's it's a goddamn, it's a wonderful sacrifice for him to make to go to that links not to infect his aunt and uncle because that mobile home they live in, it, the basement is very small. It's only like fucking two and a half feet high. So every time he goes down there, he has to kind of crawl around on his belly like a reptile. It's hard to put a good-sized basement in a mobile home. But anyway, so ha- so we want to wish get well soon to Travis, get well soon to Hotchkiss. If the Featherbottom's ultra-careful handling system is slightly delayed this week, that's why. And thank all the guest artists, right? Is that who we're thanking and giving sympathy to? That's right. I don't know how much sympathy we need for the artists. Maybe we'll find out how they feel after. Well, no, we're thanking them and we're giving sympathy to the people. Well, we might, they might need some sympathy because our, our goddamn fans, sometimes they're, they're critics, aren't they? They can hop on things when they're not fully in the loop. Hey, you brought up before what you're doing for your birthday with the autograph figures. Made me think of this story because I just read it. Uh, Slam Wrestling put up an article about the International Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame induction ceremony this past weekend we're happy to hear jim londis was finally given his due <laughs> <laughs> but did you hear about marty funk's behavior i haven't actually when you say it like that i know it's got to be something strange but i've not heard anything uh past the fact that they did the international pro wrestling hall of fame inductions the last we had heard was roman gomez went to get a Dory Funk Jr. card autographed by Dory, which he gladly did. And then Marty found out that Roman merely asked this very nice man to do something, which he gladly did and smiled while doing it. So she went over there and crossed out the autograph on the card, (laughs) ruining the card in front of multiple witnesses. We've talked about that. I I remember that one. I think I saw a picture of the card, too, after the cross out. Well, this is an article about the Hall of Fame from Dr. Bob Ryla, the man who... uh, the man who Dr. David Schultz says nothing but good things about whenever you talk to him. If there was a snafu during the weekend, it occurred through a miscommunication amongst the International Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame, the Dory Funk Jr. representative, and fans who purchased $30 tickets to obtain Dory Funk Jr.'s autograph. Uh-oh. Joe, I'm going to get this wrong, Marcinati, a certified public accountant from Tuckahoe, New York, Wait a minute. Hold on. This is, that's, already this sounds like a fucking Karnak the Magnificent bit on the Tonight Show or something. The certified public accountants from Tuckahoe. All right, go ahead. Uh, From Tuckahoe, New York, was surprised when he was told by Mrs. Funk 
that a signature on a belt would cost Joe an additional $120. Ouch! Plus the original $30 ticket price. Joe had purchased five $30 tickets as he wanted some books signed as well. Furthermore, he was told that every item would have to be personalized unless an additional $25 fee was paid per item. Wait, 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 wait a minute. You, we've got to... They're, he sh they're trying to charge more to do less is what we're saying. So you can get a personalization for the $30, but if you don't want any personalization, it costs $50. Well, hold on. It gets worse or better, however you want to see it. Let me finish the next sentence. Many collectors do not want their signed items to be personalized, but what made the situation worse was that the personalizations were not made by Dory Funk Jr., but rather by Mrs. Funk. Oh, no! So he'll sign his name and then she writes to Jim. <laughs> Unless you pay extra for her not to write it. <laughs> what a shakedown! <laughs> uh, let me see if there's any more here. Initially, Joe said that he was told by Mike Lanudo, I believe he's involved with the Hall of Fame, that he would not be given a refund because the fees were considered donations. However, the next day he was reimbursed for the unused tickets. Personally, I encountered a similar problem after buying nine advanced sales tickets for Dory's autographs. The advertising for this meet and greet stated nothing about additional fees or personalization requirements. I asked Vice President Mike Lanudo if the Pro International Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame had a written contract with Funk, and he stated he did not know as he did not do the negotiations. Because he's only the vice president. Hopefully further meet and greets will spell out all the restrictions and costs at the point of both advertising and purchasing. How about that? What a scam that is. Well, what? And again, uh, there shouldn't really... I can understand maybe if it's the goddamn rock and it's Hollywood or whatever, but... Otherwise, at something like this, should there be any terms and conditions on an autograph session? It's a pro wrestling hall of fame. You want to get a legend's autograph. The legend is either charging for an autograph or being paid to be there. Do we need to get deeper into it than that? Hi, I'm a legend and I'm signing your autograph. Nice to meet you. What the, f you know, God damn it. Was there enough people there? that anybody's standard of living was going to be changed because of all of the terms and conditions, rules and regulations that Marty was putting on who was getting what. I, I mean, you like you said, it's, well, you say it's not Dory, except Dory could just say, hell, I'll just do it, you know, but he doesn't want to have to say that to Marty, I guess, and listen to all that. You know, it goes into the conversations we've been having lately about wrestl uh, wrestlers, about fans wanting pictures with wrestlers, either not being able to stand near them or having to squat in front of a barricade. <laughs> now you want to, you have to pay extra to get a personalization to make sure that the personalization's not by just a stranger, as opposed to the wrestling legend you want to get the autograph from. This is taking advantage of people. This is crazy. I, I th yeah, I think we've, we've, it's it's gotten to be like everything else. When everything becomes a big business, then certain people are going to take advantage of it or stretch it too far or whatever. But 
you know, I've I've mentioned my reticence to charge these ridiculous prices that you see for, you know, just somebody taking a picture of you with their fucking camera. You know, I'm I'm thinking every time I see somebody, yes, you can take your phone out of your pocket and take a picture of me, whether you're in it or not, for $40 or $50 or whatever. I'm just thinking, teeny, when I was a kid, if she'd seen one of the baby faces doing that, she would have given them the grip around their chin and go, these people make you what you are and they pay your salary. So you go over and you take their pictures and you sign their autographs because you're a baby face. Uh, those were the good old days. Maybe Dory Jr. needs the funds. Who knows? But maybe he needs the grip. Maybe he needs the grip. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, hey, by the way, we got one correction. You know, we always do whenever we're pointed out that we have made an error or we were mistaken about something. It happens so rarely, but whenever it does and it's pointed out to us, we correct it. Uh, we were haranguing. The AEW booking of Jay Lethal the other day on one of the programs here recently. And, you know, we said, I think when we were talking about, uh, or maybe it was Kippelman. Yeah, I don't know. Or I, I can't remember now. The we have Jay been complaining Lethal, about Dax, his, Yeah, we've been complaining about Jay Lethal's booking for yeah, quite some time. But the Jay Lethal Dax Harwood match, when we were talking about that, we said, oh, it's great now that Jay is competitive with these top guys. And, you know, gets a win on television. That's what we've been calling for. But, you know, unfortunately, when he came in, he got beat like a fucking government mule for, you know, the first five or six times we saw him. I I said, I think even Pockets beat him. Well, I forgot it was Pockets. Adam Cole is the one that Pockets beat when he debuted. But actually, it was Jay Lethal. That's one win that he did get on television. He did beat good old Pockets. One of our... Most devoted listeners pointed that out uh, to me, so I wanted to make sure that we corrected it. Jay Lethal did beat Pockets in what was described as a clean fashion, I guess, for the AEW folks. That still doesn't mean that he started out in the company on a path to stardom. He started out getting shoehorned in and being a whipping boy, and then suddenly got a a couple of wins. We'll see where it goes. But I wanted to make that correct. You know, you hate to be wrong, Brian, just like I do. Yeah, how could you get that one wrong? That's a big one to get wrong. Well, you know, it just, it's in my mind that every time that Pockets is in the ring with some of these people, he beats them because it's happened so often. And I guess the fact that also, once you see that on the screen, you don't tend to pay too much close attention after that. I wonder what kind of rating it did. I'm sure they they popped a hell of a quarter hour, as they say in the trades. All right. Well, speaking of trades, I wish I could trade places with Lou Kippelman and <laughs> let him fill in this week. But we do have more show. Those we have... are English words that have never been said before like that. <laughs> oh, come on. Well, I wish been... I could trade places with Kippelman. Oh, I would love to trade. He's on San Francisco. He's got good restaurants. He's having a good time out there. I'm over here talking to you. and I just went to a Brazilian steakhouse, and I didn't have to leave Louisville. What was the best thing you ate on the menu? The Sao Paulo Surprise. No, actually, uh, they have. <laughs> I could have said, you know, Rio de Janeiro Roundup or whatever. The fish but, uh, Frenzy. The, no, they have no seafood. No Apparently, seafood. Brazil is landlocked, I guess. They don't have seafood on the menu, but they've got the sirloin steak that they just slice right off the 
the yam there, whatever it is. They've got the the ass or whatever part of the cow, the top sirloin come the, comes off. They just bring it right out and slice it right off there. They've got bacon-wrapped chicken. They had chicken uh, legs, smoked uh, chicken legs. They had, oh my gosh, these pork ribs that tasted just like a perfectly smoked pork chop. They had uh, pieces of filet. They had the the just any kind of meat, uh, sausage, holy mackerel. But knowing the shape you're in right now and knowing what your regiment has been like, how much were you able to eat before you got full? You know, I couldn't chow down like I used to in the old days. I must admit that I, I tapped out probably a little bit quicker, but I'm I'm not particularly mad at anybody right now that I want to eat them. See, I'm eating them and it's a surrogate type of thing. What? I'm just cutting them up with my knife and fork and I'm eating them. I hate you, you motherfucker. I see your face on my steak, so I'll just eat you. See, now I'm I'm happy and contented. You know, I think anyone who's ever bothered by what you say would be a lot calmer if they realize so much of it just comes from like Tom and Jerry cartoons. <laughs> <laughs> And Merry Melodies. <laughs> oh, I guess that, uh, you know, well, hey. you never know about these things. Hey, before we move on to the uh, jocularity part of the program. Yes. One more for People the- People uh, are waiting for us to joculate. One more for the sympathy part of the show. I just saw that Bill Ash passed away. Well, that's terrible. All right, and that was the Bill Ash tribute <laughs> here on the show. Did he ever make your boots? No, I never had boots. It wouldn't have looked right for me to have boots. That would have made me look like a wrestler. Uh, but no, I actually, I saw Bill Ash wrestle. He was in the Memphis Territory briefly in 1976. And I would say that would be the last time that I ever saw him in person. So what would that be? 46 years ago. So I'll, I'm sure later on it'll hit me like a ton of bricks, this news. You never wore boots. I'm remembering your famous red and black outfit. So what, did you wear tennis sneakers? High top leather tennis shoes. Yeah. I actually didn't remember that. Yes. Oh. What kind of tennis shoes? Um, or tennis sneakers, excuse me. Well, red and white ones. And, and then I had a pair of red and black ones. And then I had, uh, I had just, I had a pair of black ones. I don't know. It, I, I don't look for brands. I just go in. Okay. What's you know, comfortable, looks right with the outfit, and doesn't cost a fortune. And there you go. All right, well, speaking of not costing a I fortune. I understand some dipshits that get <laughs> gifted large contracts to do shit that they're not very good at for a few years tend to go crazy and just splurge on these high-priced shoes. But that's completely ignorant. And it's something that a teenage kid would do, not grown adult men with families and children. You know, when these people are 50 or 55 years old and their kids didn't get to go through college because they bought too many tennis shoes or whatever the fuck, maybe then those kids will come back and fucking slap those fucking idiots around. But meanwhile, I saved all my money and didn't have kids, so fuck you. I wear cheap shoes. And I like it. How many pairs of shoes do you currently have? Well, it depends. Now, what what do you call shoes? <laughs> what are shoes? Who are shoes? Let me clarify this. See, here's the thing. I got two pair of flip-flops that if I walk Harley, because I, I don't wear shoes in the house. 
That's uh, you. Br you bring the grime and the grit and the dirt from the outer world into your house on the bottom of your feet. Imagine what you're walking on. You're walking on dog shit's been there, dead bugs, worm blood, whatever the fuck's on the ground or on worm parking lots. Yeah. And what people step on worms and the worms just pop everywhere. The goddamn <laughs> worm blood and worm juice. And it, if it hadn't rained lately, then you're walking on, on dog shit, people's spit, and worm blood. Is it so a good fertilizer? Well, it could be, but not in the house. I don't want my goddamn grass to grow on my carpet. So I don't wear shoes in the house, so I have flip-flops at each door, front and back, if I want to take Harley out or wander out in the yard for a brief period of time. I have my shoes that I wear to go out in public, which are currently black tennis shoes of, a, of some description, of some I can't remember what fucking brand they are. I got these, uh, I've had these probably, uh, these are pre-pandemic. Uh, so I say I probably got them about four years ago and I, the pair that I replaced was the same kind. And I had those for about three or four years. And then I got a pair of my mud boots that I go out and work in the yard in, especially if we're going down to the Creek or somewhere where I'm might go up to my fucking ankles in goddamn dirt or deer shit or whatever. I got boots. So I got two pair of flip-flops, my shoes to wear out in public, and my mud boots. All right, you have your mud boots. Are you ready for a mud show here this week? Well, I thought you were going to have some kind of follow-up interrogation, like, oh, goddamn, you don't have such and such pair of shoes, or you don't have ice skates, or you were going to find fault with something. No, I'm barefoot all year round, so I'm the wrong person to criticize you. You know, some people have more than one pair of shoes that they go out in public in at the same time. And I thought, why? Well, I guess I can understand if you have to, if you have to wear a suit and you got to have the dress shoes. But I gave up on dress shoes in 1996 and just started getting black tennis shoes and wearing them with black dress pants. And nobody knows the difference. Would Frank Morell have approved? Well, Daddy Frank might have been upset. But I figure at that time I had the cachet in the industry after almost 15 years of, of being a, a, a top guy that I could make that slight change. All these veterans cutting corners, setting a bad influence on the kids. Well, you know, hey, I've got flat feet. Okay. I did, that's, and, my, and my doctor has recommended that I not wear hard-soled flat shoes because of my incredibly flat feet. That's why I don't. My foot is so flat, you cannot slide a credit card in between my arch and the floor. It just, it's just like that. That's not an edit, Jace. It's just, a, it's an example of my flat foot hitting the floor. Well, let's get away from this flat show. And we have a All variety right, of things we're talking we can go about to. my feet. Your flat feet. What do you want to talk about? Well, we could talk about, let's see what I got here on the agenda. Before get out we, of this. Before we get to the <laughs> questions, we have a few things. We could talk about biography, which wasn't flat. We could talk about SmackDown, which, yeah, that was flat. And, of course, the news that, I don't know, do we call it news? The story that broke over the last couple of days that apparently a former WWE head writer mm -hmm. solicited a gig from the USA Network and actually got one. Well, that's what he says. That's what I he says. Have, have we seen any confirmation from the USA Network? That, yeah, yeah, we did it. Um, 
But first of all, when you said a former WWE writer solicited, I've, I was hoping you'd heard even better news than what I've heard. And the solicitation charge was going to be in uh, something that would stick. But so, again, we're going to be accused of, oh, they talk about him all the time. But it generally it comes up when he says or does something outrageously ignorant or stupid or preposterous or unbelievable. And this has got to fall in one of those categories. And I'm not saying it's not true. We have not had verification yet. But apparently, good old shit stain. For our newer listeners, I will say one time, Vince Russo. <laughs> bad taste in my mouth. Shitstein claims that for the past two years, the USA Network has been paying him as a consultant for Monday Night Raw. Not the WWE paying him as a consultant, but the USA Network. is. This is basically, that's the, the statement that was made, right? He said they paid him very, very well for two years to consult on Raw. The story I saw was he claimed that he blindly hit up an executive at USA Network to pitch, I guess, them paying him. The person knew who he was. He claims that Vince McMahon signed off on it and that he was paid very well. <laughs> okay. Where do we begin? Now, let's assume this is true. Okay. So he blindly, as he says, hits up the USA Network. This is something he's been doing for the past 20 years. He blindly knocks on every door. Please help me. Please hire me. Please, please, please. We've seen him. He does it in public. It sometimes gets embarrassing, especially with those permanently skinned knees from groveling so badly. But let's say that the guy does, oh, good. Then we'll hire him and he'll be a consultant. Vince McMahon signs off on it. Fine, it's somebody else's money and he has no power. Because, number one, I don't know if I would brag about being a consultant on a program over the past two years that has been losing ratings, losing interest, losing viewers, and basically losing stars, talent, everything. But at the same time, so that's that may be part of the story that's believable. Yeah, he's been a consultant to a television program that's been steadily declining in popularity. That fits. However, it doesn't make any difference anyway because you mean to tell me that you think that any of Shitstein's ideas that he might be pitching to the USA Network have been getting through when Vince McMahon wouldn't even keep his own wrestlers that had already been in his company and on his television programs, keep them in the same gimmick or with the same name or all of the problems that Vince's presence was apparently causing that running off talent and doing this goofy creative and the things that were being panned the most were things like the Dupree male model gimmick, the things that were being universally panned by all the viewers if Vince McMahon was not letting his own creative people, his own wrestlers, his own family members have their way, you think he's going to change the goddamn program because Shitstein 
gets a job as a consultant by some random USA Network executive. Oh, I'm sure he was calling a lot of shots. So as bad as I would like to blame Shitstain for the downward trajectory of the Raw program over the past couple of years, no, I don't think he's had anything to do with it. I think if USA Network was paying him, it was probably because some dipshit executive just, okay, well, yeah, well, give the guy, what's money to the USA Network? Give the guy a couple grand a week. Now, for Shitstain, that would, is something that he would describe as being paid very, very well. For a television network to hire a consultant, yeah, you know, and they probably got buyer's remorse pretty quick and just said, ah, oh, shit, we fucked up. This is not doing anything. We signed a contract with the guy, so we'll just send him his meager check. But I'm still skeptical of the whole thing because, you know, you can't believe shit stain if 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 even if his tongue was notarized, you've got to look deeper into anything that he says. And now here's another thing. He's been pay, being paid by his own admission or his own claim by the USA Network to consult on Raw for two years. In that last two years, he has multiple times said, well, I've tried to talk to Vince McMahon about letting me help him. And then he's done programs with the theme of talking about the last email exchange he'll ever have with Vince McMahon. Then he's talked about, I could help Tony Khan if only he'd give me an opportunity to save his program for it. While he was being paid by the USA Network to help the WWE program, he's trying to get Tony Khan to pay him to help the AEW program. This backstabbing prick will fucking cut anybody's nuts off. He has never been honest. He's never been faithful. He's never been loyal. He's never been trustworthy. And he will come up with some way in his head to articulate how he's the victim or he's to not the one to blame or he's the goddamn guy that's trying to do good and everybody else is against him while he's cutting the nuts off of all of his co-workers and stabbing every boss he's ever had in the back trying to get a better job. So I don't, I don't know. Is what do you think, Brian? Is is it true? Is it false? Or is it a combination of both? I think one thing that helps his claim is that as bad as things are in WWE for the last few years creatively, with Vince and Bruce, of course Johnny Ace over there when he wasn't distracted by paralegals that were sent his way to play with. If things were bad with that, and they were, we'd always heard that the worst ideas were coming directly from the USA Network. We always heard that as bad as this shit was, the suggestions coming from USA were really the mind-numbing ones. That helps his argument. Well, you got a point there. <laughs> but and I guess, and the question is, did, we, did they ever do any of those ideas, or did they just scoff at them because, as you said, they were stupid ideas coming from... Remember, we've... We've read from my files some of the previous surveys and, and focus groups or whatever that, that uh, these people have done. So, you know, uh, who knows? But again, his main talent, and I've always given him his due, no matter what else you can say about the guy, 
he can convince people who don't know anything about professional wrestling that he knows something about professional wrestling better than anybody else in the world, even if they really do know something about professional wrestling. So when you can do that, well, I get, you know, sincerity is the key. When you can fake that, you got it made. But yeah, well, we wish, we wish that, I guess, did he get, now he's talking about it because he got future endeavored. This is, it's being spoken of in the past tense, or has he revealed this news and he's still claiming to be a part of this, uh, this arrangement he's got? I'm sure Hunter and Stephanie and Nick Khan sat down for their first <laughs> meeting with the USA Network without Vince there. And they said, so we were talking to our consultant, Vince Russo. Excuse me, what? What? <laughs> and that was probably the end of that. <laughs> <laughs> what ideas were his? I want that. What ideas were his? It's going to be a lot of questions in the months ahead. <sighs> All righty then. So, yes, of all those other programs you mentioned, something that was easier to watch than the wrestling programs was the biography this week. Another another good guy. Mick Foley comes off likable. Edge comes off likable. Rey Mysterio came off likable. Another good guy being profiled by biography. Again, it still stands out that the Randy Savage biography was the only one that seemed like they had an axe to grind. But uh, I, I like this because, I mean, I, obviously I knew Rey Mysterio comes from a wrestling family in terms of his uncle, the original Rey Mysterio, but I'd never seen a lot of that footage, Not never seen the family pictures, didn't have a, you know, a, a firm idea of Ray's childhood and growing up and, and what he went through training. So it was nice to see all that footage and interviews with his parents. Have they ever been seen before in public? I've never seen them before. I don't know if they were included in any previous biographies that WWE's done on DVD or anything, but it was very nice to see them. So, the, and they established from the start of the program, and this will come in later on, the importance of the mask in not only in Lucha in general, but also to Ray and the honor of his uncle passing it on to him. And that's one thing I didn't know that the, you would have just thought, or I always just envisioned it, that the nephew of Ray Mysterio Sr. would be his father's brother, but it's his mother's brother. Or the Smothers Brothers, which, but... Um, or the Smothers Brothers' mother. Yeah, or, well, who was the mother of the Smothers Brothers? All right. St. fucking Abbott and Costello. They had great vintage footage of Tijuana. That was cool with all those fucking uh, 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 cars of the era and etc. And this kid, from the time that, you know, he was small, he was going to school working a job at Godfather's Pizza. And boy, that brought back great memories. Do you, it, when's the last time you went to a Godfather's Pizza? I've never, ever had a Godfather's Pizza. You have never... Oh, That's a bullshit fantastic. chain. That's a bullshit chain No, they were great oh, in the 70s on. and 80s. Godfather, holy shit. And then he'd go to wrestling school at night. And finally, uh, they told the story of 
uh, Ray Sr. agreeing to train Conan as well. And so Conan and Ray begin the lifelong friendship. And he turns pro. He's only 14. And God, you know, you can tell the size of him at 14. He looked like he was. Because, I mean, look at him now, obviously. But without the physique or anything, he looked like he was 10 years old. And, you know, it, it, even in Lucha, where the guys a lot of times were smaller and did more flying, they made the point that everybody scoffed at this and it was completely ridiculous. And with any other human being in the world, it probably would have been. But I think that's what we've got to say this at the top. The same principle that applies to poor Mick Foley, one of the biggest stars in the history of the business, one of the most deserving people one of the greatest talents, but he has to bear the burden. As I mentioned when we talked about the show a couple weeks ago, uh, he has to bear the burden of bringing in a bunch of guys wanting to be wrestlers in the business that all they saw was the bumps and they wanted to be deathmatch fucks and people who were too stupid to grasp mix talent and intelligence and psychology and charisma and likability and promo and the whole nine yards and just saw thumbtacks. Ray has to bear the brunt of the, the blame for every guy who's five foot two and 135 pounds or whatever thinking that they can and should be wrestlers just and they'll say Ray Mysterio overlooking the fact of his, not only his once one in a million or one in a billion likability and charisma, physical charisma, but also the, the talent that he had physically to do the flying and still not make it look like this soft choreographed ring around the rosy bastardized Western swing dancing that they're doing now where they just join hands and prance about, do a backflip, and then do a bow to the audience like the goddamn acrobats in at Cirque du Soleil. Rey Mysterio and Eddie Guerrero or Rey Mysterio and Dean Malenko or whatever, they still didn't lose the contest. They were competing against each other and foiling each other with these incredible moves instead of cooperating, obviously, and visually to the point where it's just nausea-inducing. And it's the same thing, you know, that all the people had tried to copy Tiger Mask Sayama and Dynamite Kid. And you get a bunch of skinny beanpole jerks with no physiques and no goddamn star quality doing choreographed wrestling moves in homage to these guys instead of the way that they did them to begin with, which drew you in and made it believe, but they even showed footage here of Mysterio with Kevin Nash. And that time we re remember in WCW when Nash put Ray Mysterio over to take some of the heat off of him because they wouldn't put anybody over. So he put the smallest guy in the company over, but it worked because it was Ray Mysterio. And also because Nash wanted it to work there. You know, to your point, we see a lot of that copycat stuff nowadays, like even something that we didn't like. Like the Will Ospreay ricochet opening where they just did like a two-minute running, diving yeah. sequence. Like that kind of shit gets copied now in the indies. I hate seeing it, but, you know, with Rey Mysterio specifically, or Rey Mysterio Jr., if you remember when AEW first popped up, 
and you first noticed Marco's stunt and were making comments about how ridiculous he was, that was the defense people had. Rey Mysterio was the same size. <laughs> Rey Mysterio, ignoring what you just said, Rey Mysterio was one in a million. Rey Mysterio isn't just another five foot two wrestler. He was very special from the beginning. But even they were ignoring eyesight also, because did you see Ray in almost every clip in this program from the time that he really even started in AAA before he went to WCW? He turned pro when he was 14. He looked like shit physically. But by the time he was in AAA and about to go to WCW, he had a physique dwarf dong sucker always looked like a pale dish rag being hung from a line. He had no definition, no weight, no muscle tone, no evidence that he had ever been an athlete or worked out at anything. And that's, again, that's a difference that people willingly overlook. Oh, I'm the same size as so-and-so. Well, my cousin Larry is the same size as Conor McGregor. Two completely different visuals. It's the first anyway. time we've heard confirmation of the size of Cousin Larry here on the show. Well, he he may have fleshed out a little bit over the past few years. But um, but anyway, so back to Ray and the biography. And finally, uh, going back a little bit before, you know, he got to AAA and WCW, Ray Sr. finally made him Ray Mysterio Jr. He bestowed that on him when he was ready because before he'd been like the green lizard and the hummingbird. Uh, and that probably wasn't going to go anywhere. And then Conan uh, gets Ray in on the ground floor of AAA, which didn't go well at first. They had no money, but then finally it took off, and they do the When Worlds Collide pay-per-view in 1994, and people see on a more widespread basis for the first time Ray Mysterio, and, you know, they're, what the fuck? He gets a lot of buzz. Conan was great here. You know, I've killed him for different yeah. things, but he actually was fantastic in this documentary. Yeah, and you know, he's been an advocate for the Mexican talent for years and years, and is always, he was in on the formation with Pena of, of AAA, and he's always tried to agent, you know, the Lucha guys into the American companies and be that that conduit, and you know, you could at least he saw something in Rey Mysterio and he stuck by him. He stuck by him. He stuck, he stuck by him. He did. I now I sound like Conor McGregor. He stuck by him. Who the fuck are you? But you know, he stuck by him and he got him in places. Of course, then <laughs> Paul E pops in. And of course, he sees him on the When Worlds Collide pay-per-view and wants to bring him to ECW because that was at the time that was the perfect audience, the smart audience. That was that w would you say at that time, this is probably getting into more of your wheelhouse, the ECW crowd comprised, what, 80, 90% of the smart fans in the country. That was pretty much what they, and, and oh. to a lesser extent, WCW. Overall, I couldn't put a number on it. In Philadelphia alone, I wouldn't say that, but you got to remember, too, the pay-per-view was November 94. Paul Lee did a lot of stuff with John Arezzi in 93, overseas and stuff, even in the States, and John Arezzi was the one who hooked up Conan with Ron Scholar, which brought AAA to the big arena in California. Right. So he, Paul Lee had been around Conan, the minis, he was pretty well aware of all these things, and also, AAA was airing in the New York area. 
It didn't air on Long Island, but if you were in Manhattan, if you were in Brooklyn, Queens, you got AAA. That's how I was able to. Eric Bembet in 93 sent me Rey Mysterio Jr. versus Heavy Metal. I couldn't believe it. It was incredible. Two out of three falls. So Paul Lee, if he said that he only was aware of it because of when worlds collide, I'd be shocked because he was pretty well. Well, no, I know he, he knew everybody that was doing anything at that point. But when he, here's the thing, when Ray gets buzz from the pay-per-view, yeah, bring him up here. But that's, that's what I'm saying is that was the perfect place at the time for Ray Mysterio, because the smart fans were buzzing about him and were into him and ECW comprised most of the smart fans. And the problem became beyond future problems with ECW, Paulie would bring in guys from, let's say, Mexico, because he brought in Conan, he brought in Ray, brought in Psychosis, then Ray and Juventud had some great stuff in ECW. So around the time, Chris Jericho comes in, Dean Malenko and Benoit had just been there. Paulie's bringing in great guys from out of town, and they're almost one by one getting picked off by WCW, and he's being left with just, eventually he'll be left with just his own guys, because all these fly-ins get picked off by WCW. Right. But... What I, the comment, and I love Paul on these shows because he's a great talking head, but this kind of proves the point that I was making uh, to people who care to pick up on that point. He sits down and says, well, they came to me and said, can we use a chair? Can we use a table? I said, this is your canvas paint. He let them do anything they wanted to, just like he let it, just like Tony Khan is doing now. He let the guys do whatever the fuck they wanted to do with these stunts and this bullshit because it was a car wreck and his people were going to pop for it. But that started this fucking trend in America. And then a bunch of guys who didn't understand what wrestling was about and were just watching chaos and carnage on a TV show wanted to get into wrestling and be wrestlers to do that shit. And so I'm glad to hear Paul admit from his own lips what I've accused him of in the past. It's your, it's your canvas. You paint. Well, no, because I fucking rented the building that the fucking art gallery is in right now. And I'm goddamn paying the water bill and the electric bill. And you might go and work for another art gallery, but I'm going to have to get some more artists in to replace you. So for the health of my entire art gallery i'm not gonna let one particular artist paint a bunch of dicks and pussies all over the wall i'm gonna leave them wanting something and something for us to come back with but paul admitted what he did uh and then conan goes to wcw gets ray the tryout and did you like seeing bischoff taking credit for creating the cruiserweight division like he's the first person to ever push light heavyweight wrestlers or junior heavyweights or middleweights or whatever they called them in England or Japan or whatever. They just came up with the term. But I think he took credit there for inventing pushing smaller wrestlers. Yeah, I mean, he's fairly benign in these things. And the problem is he either doesn't remember a lot of things accurately or sometimes he says things that are just wrong. But. You know, he's trying to, well, you know, I got to be honest, this one, I'm not going to complain too much. Even Bruce Pritchard. I thought everyone in this one was, this one up until the 
some of the storylines when Ray went to WWE. I thought this was one of the best documentaries they've done. I thought every talking head did a pretty good job. Well, and I like this also because as soon as I jotted that down and said that, they got to where Bischoff gets his in this <laughs> about the mask. Eric Bischoff admitted that he wanted Rey Mysterio to unmask, and not only that, but he didn't understand why it was a big deal to Ray and why that he shouldn't be unmasking. He actually admitted that. I, well, I didn't know it was a lot of meant a lot to him personally. This fucking moron was doing business with AAA at the time and doing business with the luchadors and the blah, blah, blah. And he had no idea that you couldn't just tell these guys, hey, take your mask off. Or he couldn't tell by looking at Oscar Gutierrez in the locker room who looked 12 years old that you shouldn't take the goddamn child, the, the kid's superhero's mask off and show him to be looking like he was 12 years old. Yeah, no one wanted to see Rey Mysterio without a mask yelling hootie who with Master P and the No Limit Soldiers. No, in the business at the time, everybody was shocked. They took his mask off. People's jaw dropped. Why the fuck would you do something like that? And they, they postponed it once. Eddie Guerrero put Ray over so he could keep the mask. And so then they do Hall and Nash against Ray and Conan with Elizabeth's hair versus Ray's mask. And then Bischoff gets his way. Which, by the way, I wrote here in capital letters was the stupidest thing ever done to Ray Mysterio or anyone else in the wrestling business. And Bischoff comes back and comments, well, in hindsight, I would have done it differently, but in the moment, considering what we knew and the blah, 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 I'd do it again. Well, you're a fucking moron. And at least uh, later on, they had obviously, I'm sure everybody said that, but the, the, they had Paul E. say it best. Later on, <laughs> when it comes time for Ray to go to the WWF, Paul E. said, it wasn't that we were so smart to put the mask back on. It was a refusal to be stupid enough to keep the mask off. That's the way everybody in the wrestling business thought. So Edric Bischoff go, well, in hindsight, eh, fuck you. Um, yeah, no one, at the, no one at the time thought it was a good idea to take his mask off. No, and I remember Ray actually, I think he had, came, he had come down when they were trying him out or he was getting back in the ring to work or do something. It was early on, right as he was coming into the WWE after Vince bought WCW. Uh, and he had set out for a while because he had the contract. But he was in the Davis Arena because he was in an HWA TV taping, and that's when we were taping Les Thatcher's program. And they and he was still working without the mask on. I'm like, I'm sitting there looking at him. Why the fuck? You've got a goddamn superhero or a grade schooler just with a piece of fabric. And this is the stupidest thing. So anyway... Finally, they worm him in, and I remember this. Vince McMahon, this was not a rib. Vince McMahon, on and off for years, had wanted a goddamn Mighty Mouse. And I think other people, at various points, were considered for that. Was it Crash Holly at one point before he got settled in with what he was doing. Were they going to make him the mighty mouse? Was there another one? I'm trying to think. He kind of was mighty mouse. All things considered the way they booked him with Bob Holly, but with Rey Mysterio, obviously it was a completely different thing. 
Yeah, well, no, I mean, he want. I think he at, at one point he wanted an actual like Mighty Mouse, and then just kind of the Mighty Mouse gist of it, the small superhero, whatever the fuck. But Vince had. I think that's the only reason that they were able to to get Ray wormed in there, and then of course, you know, he gets over. And did you see the difference in the presentation? And in the life of of everything he was doing, you see the the WCW footage, and obviously in the matches, he's working with you know guys like Psychosis or Eddie or whatever. The, the matches look great, but he's coming down. It's not the WWF production. It's not the they weren't giving him a push, even if if he was on top in WCW when you. When you are on top in the WWF, it's a completely different treatment. They gave him the contact lenses, the end, the springing entrance out of the stage. They do little things, or at least they used to, to make you seem like a bigger star. So he got the big budget push there and the crossbody off the top of the cage. And I love, again, everybody's going, oh, goddamn, that was so great. I'll just do it. This uh, the the dive off the top of the cage was a guy that weighs 140 pounds diving on two guys that were six six and two eighty, and somehow people forget to examine the actual physics of these things and just go, "Well, he did it. I can do it." But um, the only thing I didn't like about the show, and it wasn't about the biography, it was just that they covered this at that length, and was the. Obviously, Ray and Eddie Guerrero were best friends, but they come up with the story that Eddie claims that he's Dominic's father instead of Ray, and the glee in which Bruce was explaining this whole idea and whole concept, it was obviously his idea. And this was a lot of what you had to deal with up there. They all loved horseshit like this. If whether it, it comes off of Jerry Springer or goddamn whatever, but we can't just blame Shitstain. They love the idea, oh, let's bring a, a paternity test into it. Or, you know, I don't know what their, their whole thing with parentage, paternity test, miscarriages, fake pregnancies, whatever the case. And so, uh, spoiler, Ray won his son back in a ladder match. But, you know, that was, and and sometimes I don't know whether like Ray saying, oh, yes, you know, it added dimension to me and it was a great story. We pulled it off or whatever. I don't know whether they really think that or whether they just don't want to come out and say, oh, I was goddamn miserable having to do this shit. Because Stockholm Syndrome, a lot of wrestlers now think that this kind of fucking soap opera hoo-ha is just, oh, it's so fun. But anyway, from Eddie's death in, what, November of 2005, Ray wins the Rumble in Eddie's honor and then wins the title at WrestleMania. And again, that was kind of like, if it had been, what, seven years earlier or whatever, six years, whatever it was, it would have been a Mick Foley moment. It was still a big deal, but it wasn't quite the, yo, Adrian, I did it, that because of, you know, Cactuses, well, the whole Attitude Era was hotter. But nobody ever thought that a guy Mysterio's size would win the, you know, the WWF title. Because of Vince. Because of Vince, yeah. 
Well, in actuality, nobody else Rey Mysterio's size is ever going to win the WWF title, whether Vince is around or not, because there'll never be anybody else that size that was perfect in every way. The emerging Hispanic market, superhero to the kids, everything that the WWF wanted to do or market to was wrapped up in Rey Mysterio. And Remember, we've talked about this, and this was a rule of thumb in wrestling for years and years, and I don't know why they decided to amputate the thumb, but ethnic heroes, minority heroes, whatever you want, whether in in whatever part of the country, in whatever time period, whether they were Greek, Jim Londos, or Italian, Bruno Sammartino, or Black Bobo Brazil, or any type of ethnicity or race that was prevalent in a particular area, the wrestling promoters would always try to find a baby face to, you know, to draw from that population. And that's why and I never knew and didn't understand this until years afterward, but apparently that's why there was a bunch of Italians in Australia. That's why Barnett used Dominic DiNucci and, and guys like that. She would think in Australia, but, you know, there's a heavy population in Ontario of whatever Tiger Jeet Singh, whatever nationality or extraction he was or whatever. I'm not going to try to bungle it, but that's why that that he was huge there. Because it was a you know an ethnic connection. Well, Hispanic heroes especially have always gotten over to the Hispanic population, but you have to they have to be top guys. They don't stick with their heroes if their heroes are not presented as main event level caliber, if they lose or if they get jacked around or whatever. And I'd mention, and, uh, you know, a lot of, it wasn't just the, the Mexican talent or the Hispanic talent and, and the fans that felt that way. So I think they could have made Ray even bigger at that period of time when he was still young enough, didn't have injury problems. And I, I still don't think, even though they put the belt on him, they didn't push him as strongly as they could have uh, and that's why he, even though he was huge with the Hispanic market and a big draw with him, he wasn't ever as big as I thought he could have been. If, if we've talked about that before. You can't, if you want the black folks to support the black baby face, if you want the Mexican folks to support the Mexican baby face on down the line, they have to be presented as top guys, not lucky to win the big one, but more often in the middle or whatever the case. You see what I'm saying? They got to have somebody to be behind that's credible. Yeah, they have to believe in them. They have to choose yeah. them themselves, too. I mean, that's one of the reasons, you know... Alberto Del Rio didn't work because they didn't choose him. Everyone after JYD didn't work because those fans felt like those new black superstars that would show up in Mid-South were being forced down their throats. All of a sudden, Master yeah. G is there and various people. It wasn't natural. They didn't accept him the way they chose the dog. Well, and I did not uh, realize this until they showed the footage. I read about it at the time and then put out of my mind who the opponent was. 
But when he took time off Ray, too many pronouns, pal, from the WWE and he was he was having the stem cell therapy for all of his injuries and he had gotten in trouble with pain medications like apparently everybody does, I guess. But his wife <laughs> threw him away and made him go to rehab. But while he was out of WWE, he was the one of the opponents uh, for the match in Tijuana when Paraguay Jr. died. I hate that they showed footage of that. It really makes me uncomfortable. Well, it they because the I footage saw, they showed was literally him dead in the ring. Yeah. Well, I mean, him leaning on the ropes first, obviously not with it, and then him dead. But the newspaper headline, I it it flashed. I saw cervical, and it was in Spanish, obviously. But did he have a spinal injury, or was that a heart attack? I thought it was a broken neck. I have to go back and check, but I believe he broke his neck. When he hit the rope, they think. And that's why as soon as he hit the rope, he was dead. That's right. That's right. That's what it was. When he went down for the 619. Ray Ray went right over the top of him, thankfully, and missed him. I believe his neck had been broken right before that. And that's when he had the look on his face like, "Uh, but it wasn't a... It wasn't a vicious neck snap type of thing. It was just one of those deals where it was time for it to break but anyway um so that obviously was a a down part of the program but then they come back to the return in the wwe and and the 2018 rumble and dominic turns pro and they team at wrestlemania 2022 and get matching outfits to honor art bar and eddie guerrero and everybody lived happily ever after Hey, just to clarify, Paraguayo Jr.'s cause of death was cardiac arrest due to a cervical stroke caused by three fractured vertebrae. Okay. He broke C1, C2, and C3. Good Lord. So the neck injury caused the... We were both right, and we both remembered hearing that a neck injury caused enough shock to lead to cardiac arrest. Good heavens. I hadn't watched that footage since, you know, it all first happened and it was all over the news. It was on TMZ and everything. And I can't even imagine Conan's there at ringside, you know, touching him because he doesn't realize what's happened yet. Ray's yeah, in the he, ring. He, he was shaking him like, wake up, wake up. I mean, it's just such an uncomfortable thing to watch. And you feel for everyone involved in that. It's hard to imagine, you know, when it's something like that, when it's a move that Rey Mysterio does to a guy in every single match now. You have to wonder what that does to someone's head going into the next match, thinking that if someone hits the ropes, this is a possibility of what could happen. Well, you know, but again, that's not... It, there wasn't force. It's a freak thing. There wasn't force that you go into the ropes like that, and if you take it right, it alleviates some of that, but they've talked about, well, same thing happened with Masawa, right? Where it... it it's just at some point, you know, something's going to break. Whether if you twist the paperclip long enough, it's going to break. And so that we see these constant um, bumps and falls and people being flung on their head and go, oh, man, Big E was flung on his head and did break his neck. But we think, holy shit, but they live through them and they don't get injured sometimes, but that doesn't mean that the next time that they fall like that, even if it's not as hard or as violent or with as much momentum, 
that it's just not going to be time for whatever the fuck it is to just fucking break. And this has never been a thing in wrestling before over the last, until the last 20 years. It's always like, oh, watch out, don't break your leg, don't fall on somebody. Or, you know, don't take a bad bump through the ropes or whatever, but not just in the process of regularly going about a normal match. There's shit happening that may very well paralyze your ass. It's fucking insane. But anyway, but that was biography. And again, Rey Mysterio, a not only a nice guy, and a deserving guy, but also a one-in-a-million talent that can overcome things that a regular person couldn't overcome because they have an extraordinary amount of talent or ability or charisma or likability or psychology in their head. Ray's not a great promo like Mick Foley but he had other attributes that made him stand out and be special and that and the costume and the the gimmick and the persona they all love to use these words that he created that's what made him stand out and he still was trained in the wrestling business and everything that I've ever seen and I've I've mentioned this even though he does the flips and the dives Everything you see Ray do technically still makes sense. Technically still looks like he's in a fight or a contest or he's trying to win something. He understands it's the drama of the the the, the young, small, underdog babyface selling and coming back with his speed and agility instead of just the... Goddamn, oh, he did a quadruple backflip with a triple twist and a touch of lime or whatever. So, you know, I think that um, unfortunately, a bunch more people are, that are five foot two and 140 pounds are going to see that and go, well, I can put a mask on and be Rey Mysterio. No, you can't. Only Rey Mysterio can do that. Hey, before you wrap this thing up, what did you think of the stuff at the end with Dominic Mysterio, who despite what he is in the ring, comes across like the nicest guy. He is, I know. It is, I've, I feel bad that I've mocked his appearance in the past, but he is the nicest guy in the world, but there's a... I, and I don't want to criticize this guy and make him upset, but let's be honest. If his father was not Rey Mysterio Jr., would he be in the ring right now? No. No. And... You know, so it it works that father and son, and they got something out of it, whatever, but Dominic Mysterio is not going to have the long upper echelon career that his dad did for the same reason that a lot of other sons of famous, you know, Frank Sinatra Jr. did not have the platinum selling, you know, track record of his dad, even though he was quite an adequate singer for small clubs and you know various things like that yeah, and kidnappers you know, everywhere and kidnappers everywhere you know every junior every offspring every son is not going to be as good or better than the father and that's you know no shame but no dominic does not have the build nor the face 
to be a wrestler, but he had an in because he is Rey Mysterio's son, and they wanted to tell a story. And I don't blame any kid for wanting to do what their father wanted uh, did for a living. But, you know, at some point when Ray is retired, I don't know that Dominic is going to have a long future in this occupation. Really good biography. I was uncomfortable, like I said, with the Pero Aguayo Jr. footage. You have to tell that story. But, you know, when you know what's happening there, it's a little uncomfortable seeing it. And, you know, again... I get it that WWE itself may be proud of the Ray Eddie Guerrero feud over paternity, uh, but I didn't like it at the time, and I really didn't like it now, and there's no justification for it, and pretending like that was good is like pretending like the shit after Eddie died where they said Eddie was going to burn in hell is good. No, there's sometimes you can go too far, and some things just are not good, and I didn't like... There's so many things you could have done, you didn't have to do that with Ray and Eddie. Right. Because they were best friends and they had great matches and they each were completely selfless with wanting to get the other one over. So I don't, they didn't have to argue over custody of the children, but, but nevertheless, uh, it's, it's the WWE and they love that kind of thing. Well, Jim, before we get to any modern stuff or other things, whatever else is going on here, there's a few things. I want to ask you while we're talking history, you know, the Mets, this past weekend. Oh, the, Jesus. No, hear me out. <laughs> for the first time since 1994, had Old Timers Day. And it was awesome for a Mets fan. They brought back legends from... They brought back the guy who won the first Met game, Jay Hook, in 1962. The man who wrote... They didn't say this, but the man who wrote Marvelous Marv on Marvelous Marv Throneberry's locker. They brought him back. They had players from all the different generations. They hadn't done anything like this since 94. The previous ownership never really embraced the team's history. Why in the world isn't that the biggest thing in sports to bring back the legends, the icons, the, you know, Mickey Mantle Day or whatever? Why would they go so long without doing that? You know, it's a complicated thing and it's a long discussion, but the Mets ownership, the guy who took over the... Fred Wilpon was a minority partner. And then after 1986, when they won the World Series, he became half-owner with Nelson Doubleday of Doubleday Printing. Doubleday And the, the, the Wilpon family, there was some offshoot of the Wilpon family that some guys were convinced was going to start a big-budget wrestling promotion about 10 years ago. Right. And it turned out they were all linked up with Bernie Madoff. And <laughs> the money that the Wilpons used to buy out Nelson Doubleday at a rate that was a gift from Major League Baseball the money they used to finance the new stadium, to defer contracts so Bobby Bonilla is going to be paid for another 12 years or something. That was all Bernie Madoff money. It was profits that didn't really exist, and that's what funded their ability to be major league owners. But when they built that new stadium, they built a shrine to the Brooklyn Dodgers because the patriarch, Fred Wilpon, was a kid in Brooklyn, went to high school with Sandy Koufax, he loves to tell everyone. He had his heart broken when the Brooklyn Dodgers left. He never got over it. And the Mets opened a new stadium, which was a tribute to the Brooklyn Dodgers, and there was no team history, and there was an outcry. And then they did things like add pictures. But there were incidents like Dwight Gooden was in the bar, not that he was drinking, but like in the bar area with the fans, and I said, hey, you should sign the wall. And he did. He wrote Dwight Gooden, 1984 Rookie of the Year, 1985 Cy Young Award winner. 1986 World Series champion. 
and the Mets painted over it and called it graffiti what? in the ah. press. <laughs> like there were things like this, but now we have a new owner. We have the richest owner in baseball, and he happens to be a Mets fan. And a little layup like this, which goes a long way with fans like me, celebrating the team's history, which we'd like to do more of, was a wonderful event. It was incredible. In wrestling, you did the Night of Legends. Yeah. And I was there, and it was a really special night, and I'm sure in ways that I can't think of, in your head, it could have gone better. You were there in St. Louis when the Mets, the Mets, when the WWE honored Sam Mushnick (laughs) (laughs) and uh, the various legends of St. Louis wrestling who all wore nice suits except for Dory Funk Jr. who ran out advertising Dory Funk Jr.'s website. So you've been a part of various set of other ones too. I'm not limiting it to that. Well, there was the uh, Monday Night Memories in Memphis that Randy Hales did that uh, I think that may have been the biggest crowd uh, or the last big crowd for the Memphis Territory. It was in 1994 and they did 8,000 some people. Uh, it, it works. And we've seen WCW had Slamboree, which in the early years was specifically a a legends-based pay-per-view event. You were going to see the legends right. of wrestling and other things. And WWE's had their Raw reunions, which they treat their legends a very different way. My question, my long-winded question... Yes, there's one coming soon. Beyond Let's Go Mets is, what do you think is the perfect way to present a night like that? As opposed to just having legends trickle in and out throughout the year. If you were going to have an annual celebration... Like if AEW, because Tony Khan's a big fan at the end of the day, said, hey, we want one night a year where we celebrate wrestling history. What is the perfect way to do it, do you think? What's the mixture of modern wrestling with past wrestling? How long should the ceremonies go? Should there be ceremonies during the event? What do you think? Well, I don't know. How can AEW celebrate wrestling history when they've been around for three years and most of the historic wrestlers are signed elsewhere. And see, that's the problem is you can, the, the national promotions have to make a decision. Do we find national stars that everybody knows that we can honor that are not contracted to Vince or somebody else or whatever? Maybe in the town that we happen to be in, possibly none of these wrestlers ever competed there. They weren't over in this part of the country, but they're Ica, so we're doing that. In the territory days, you could bring back legends that were centric to the part of the country that you were promoting in. And then everybody would know that that was your key to sell live event tickets, especially when. In the 90s, wrestling really started sucking, and the fans wanted to see the the legends of their childhood and the, the names that they remembered. So in the territories, you could do that, and it meant something. The WWF, their problem is their legends are so much more over than the current talent that the people just don't want to see Steve Austin honored. They want to see Steve Austin fight. Or they want to, you know, the Sting. They still want to see Sting wrestle. The Night of Legends that we did in Knoxville was specifically a tribute 
to the previous generation and to the to the stars that were main event level or or favorites of 20 and 30 years beforehand we did have a legends match stomper the mongolian stomper who was kind of ageless cuz look at that fucking conditioning he was in his mid 50s in smoky mountain he rode his bicycle 6 miles to work every day so we had Stomper and Ronnie Garvin against Bob Orton Jr. and Dick Slater. And those guys, actually, it was the best worked wrestling match on the yeah, whole show. That was a lot of fun. But for the most part, for Don and Al Green and Ron and Don Wright and, you know, all of the real Knoxville legends, you know, we let them come out and be honored. Nobody, you know, wanted to see him. Any of them tried to take a bump. Ron Wright knocked me out, right? So... That was the the thing with the territories is you still had a full card of main event guys, top guys and things that were active at that point. And that's the matches the fans came to see. And you give them a legends match, but you have the ceremony and maybe one of the other legends is in the corner. And of course, Bob Armstrong that night was wrestling. He was normally the commissioner, but he was in the main event in the six man. But otherwise, you had Road Warrior Hawk. You had the Funk Brothers. Then you had Chris Candido and the Rock and Roll Express and the fucking young guys mixed with old guys. Remember, the Rock and Roll were only in their mid-30s at that point. So That's crazy. Well, yeah, that, they, <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah, well, we established that on a show here recently that when the Rock and Roll Express were the Smoky Mountain Tag Champions, they were a couple of years younger than the Hardly Boys when they were the AEW Champions, and Tracy Smothers was five years younger than Kenny Olivier when he was the Smoky Mountain Champion as when Olivier was the AEW Champion. But everybody thought, oh, the youth movement. In terms of the videos, though, because live, you didn't have a screen because it was 1994 and you were promoting wrestling, so you didn't have a giant screen there. Right. So you introduced the legends... They came in to the ring, they got an award, they got to be in front of the fans. But in the weeks building up to it, you had a whole bunch of really great video packages hosted by Les Thatcher, which lent credibility to the area because of his involvement there. In a perfect world, do you think if you're going to do an event like that, you have to do videos like that? Oh, God, yes. Because See, here's the thing. Everybody in Knoxville, Tennessee, had heard of Ron Wright. I mean, you know, maybe you could have found kids in a fucking grade school that didn't know the name, at least, Ron Wright. But in Knoxville, because of how big wrestling was over the years and because of how Ron was there forever and was always on top, everybody'd heard the name. And we, we showed the uh, the newspaper clippings from the 70s when they would report on the results of the wrestling matches they would just use Ron and Ron Wright and Whitey Caldwell's first names in the headlines. Ron beats Whitey at Chilhowee Park. That was the Knoxville News Sentinel. Everybody in town knew who these people were, right? But you still get kids that never got a chance to see them. And that's the idea that the parents and the grandparents can bring their kids to see the stars that they used to go see. And the kids will see the TV where we're telling them and we're refreshing the adults. Remember, you know, this guy and that guy and the other guy. Well, here were the Don and Al Green, the heavenly bodies. Here was this, the, all these stars, pictures, tape if we could, uh, you know, dramatic moments, 
whatever, if we could find something to, you know, register that. And that way, everybody was ready to see him. And you could have brought Ron and Don Wright out in the Knoxville Civic Coliseum in front of 5,000 people without any preconditioning on television. They would have been over. But maybe they might not have remembered Danny Jack Donovan that good. Or maybe they might not have remembered, you know, whoever. So you reinforce that, and at the same time, you're selling the event. you got to be here to see this. This isn't going to happen again. It's a once-in-a-lifetime thing. And all these great matches, plus the chance to see all these stars. And we hit them with nostalgia and the good old days. So older people came. Younger people came. It was the biggest house that we had drawn up to that point in time and the second biggest house we ever drew. And it was and the 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 go home TV where we recapped everything, played all of the uh, profiles of the legends back, and did the go home sell in Knoxville. We did an eight rating on Sunday morning. It wasn't for the new shit. They want to see the old shit because that's when it was good, <laughs> even back then. But that's that was the the heroes they always remembered for one night. The Mets play however many games per season. 162. Okay, but for one night, you can go back and you can see Mickey Mantle and Ty Cobb and... Or Mets legends, yes. And Slapko Sadovich or whoever the fuck play. You know, you can see all of them, right? For one night. Even if they ain't playing, they're still going to be there. And that's and that's the thing, but... They're in uniform. Like that's the thing. Even They have an old-timers game, but at least you get to see even yeah. the guys who can't play, you get to see them with their numbers on their back one more time. And the WWF, you know, they like to humiliate the legends in large part, except if they're icons like of Austin and Rock level, and then they don't get a humiliated, but then they come off as, you know, better than the current talent. I mean, everybody at the Night of Legends in Knoxville loved seeing Don and Al Green again. But nobody was rooting for them to hop in the ring and beat up on the Rock and Roll Express and didn't think that they'd be able to because they were 70 years old at the time. But now the the legends come back after 20 years and they look like they can kick the shit out of the top guys that are being featured today. So that's a problem. And secondly, unless you've got the all-time icons of wrestling, Hulk Hogan, Ric Flair, Roddy Piper, and everybody else that's dead, then it's hard to do a legend show for a national consumption, a national TV show or a big-time pay-per-view, because then you got to find the people that everybody remembers. You can't go and say, well, Crusher was the most famous resident in the city of Milwaukee's history, and he's got a goddamn statue in the park. Yeah, but in San Bernardino, the Crusher could probably walk through the mall unnoticed. So that's another of the problems. What do you think? Again, baseball and wrestling are very different in this way. As I said before, a guy could come out and you see his number and you could have the memory with wrestling. You know, if it's a guy you remember being all jacked up and he's all shriveled up, it changes your perception a little bit. But what about the idea of doing an annual event as opposed to one big event? This is the only time you'll ever see this. The idea that this is the first annual, the second annual, raw old timers day or whatever it may be. Okay, but then you're diluting your old timers and how many 
you're net you're they're not it's like antiques they're not making any more antiques there's actually less of them as time goes on how do you do that every year and bring back names that everybody will remember and want to see on an annual basis and not have the law of diminishing returns so i mean i you know i'll i love the prospect probably better than anybody of doing legend shows and reunions and things like that but it's hard to do it on a national basis and it's hard to do it these days when they make any more legends yeah and i wonder what would happen i mean the ratings aren't spectacular right now but if let's just say wwe was going to build up for a month that whatever it is october 1st will be our annual night of the legends and tribute to smoky mountain wrestling whose library we've buried (laughs) And they spend 20 minutes an episode with a different look. One of their serious commentators, whoever that may be, put them in a studio and they do some really cool, less Thatcher-like personality profiles as shown on Smoky Mountain Wrestling. What would happen to the ratings? Would the ratings actually go down? Would the ratings stay steady? Would people go, what's this? This is kind of cool. And it's building up to something. You get used to seeing it after a couple weeks. You know, everyone runs from the idea of doing any history stuff, but I wonder if you did it right. I mean, remember when Watts was uh, running WCW, they just aired all of a sudden Flair versus Steamboat from three years earlier? Yeah. And it got like the highest rating of any of their shows all year. (laughs) I mean, you know, I don't know because have we, have we become disenchanted with or not disenchanted but disconnected with the past in wrestling to the point where the the modern fans would go well, what i don't understand i don't know who these people are or what are they doing because the wrestling looks different i mean baseball still looks the same in all the clips football still looks the same wrestling now doesn't even look like wrestling did in 1980 so you know, I, I, in every single Legends event or promotion anywhere that I've been involved with, the fans loved the Legends, loved the look at the nostalgia, loved the packages, loved whatever, and cheered the, the Legends. But that was all in a context of wrestling. Now that sports entertainment and blah, 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 I mean, we were in St. Louis with bad blood with the NWA champions. So, of course, they got an ovation there. Would they have gotten the same ovation in Seattle? Probably Terry Funk would have. Sam Muchnick wouldn't have. But, again, it was a situation where in 1997, everybody in St. Louis for 50 years had seen Sam Muchnick's name in the newspaper or, uh, you know, seen his programs on television or, you know, the uh, uh, public service that he did and contributions to charities and shows of that nature. But in any other city in the country, it wasn't the same thing. So, yes, Sam Muchnick, beloved longtime resident of St. Louis, is going to get a nice response, even if they've never seen him in person before. But that's it's hard when you start trying to do this thing for a national audience. Well, speaking of what things are 
being presented like now to a national audience. I know you said you watched SmackDown. We'll get to that in a little bit. I insisted that you check out something from Raw before it gets too late in the day. Yes, you did. Because a lot of people are talking about it, and it certainly was a noticeable change on the face of it. And we do have some audio we could play as you review it, so we could put it in the proper context. But uh, before we get to anything, what are your thoughts on Seth Rollins and Matt Riddle? Now he has a first name again. Matt Riddle and Austin Theory, by the way. These names are coming back. The name game, Shirley, Shirley. Let's do Chuck. Chuck, Chuck, Bobuck, Banana, Fana. Ooh, let's not do Chuck. So anyway. <laughs> <clears throat> um, it's like being in camp. I, it's wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, and Raw is still three hours long, and it was just late last night that it was over with, and we're recording now. We're going to talk more about the rest of the show, if anything happened of any note on the experience. but. There was one thing that you say you got to watch this, and now I know why you did, because apparently they are experimenting with just letting guys argue with each other and call each other names instead of doing uh, dramatic readings of stilted, phony dialogue in their promos. And both these guys, Riddle, uh, Matt Riddle and Seth Franklin Rollins, <laughs> both of them, were in their gimmick, they were talking like that they themselves and or whatever Seth has been doing lately, but it wasn't the scripted, monotone delivery of memorized, you know, verbiage. It was more earthy. And, you know, like where we've been making fun of when that toxic attraction, they say, we live a, a seductive life of guiltiness or whatever the fuck they're just saying hey you know what fuck you motherfucker how about i punch you in a fucking face and that was refreshing they set up the point counterpoint apparatus so because of their incredible animosity between each other they can't be in the same room so they're in the separate rooms and they're in the boxes side by side point counterpoint seth you ignorant slut and they had showed VTR, um, I guess, does that is that even a term anymore? Videotape no. replay is what VTR is. Well, if I write a TV format, it's going to say VTR. They showed the VTR of a cell phone camera, supposedly from a fan of an aerial shot. I guess they were at the top of the parking garage. They're down in the parking lot at the arena, and Riddle's on the phone. And Seth Rollins sees him, and they they just lock up and have a fight, and people are pulling them apart. And then they come to the double boxes. And I still don't know if I could tolerate Matt Riddle as a person, just with the, you know, his whole, his whole thing, down to the purple and lime green fingernail polish. Did you see that? I missed it, no. Uh, purple and lime green every other finger. Anyway, but Seth Rollins was natural here in his gimmick, but he was speaking words that he apparently was coming up with. And even Riddle sounded like that he meant some shit that he was saying, and they just argued. And Rollins took most of it, and then finally said, hey, you know, you know, whatever the fuck he said to Riddle, and Riddle's go-home line was, well, hey, there's only one man in your marriage, and that's Becky. And Seth gets the 
pissed off look on his face and they go to the announcers and into the break or whatever. We could play some of that audio if you want to get to that point. Okay, yeah. Let's 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 get there with that. So here's towards the end of Seth Rollins doing the face to face, or not face to face, but what would you call it? I mean they're well, split point screen. counterpoint. Point counterpoint. That's split what it screen. is. Split screen. Split screen right. point counterpoint. So we're gonna start with the end of Seth Rollins talking here, and it'll go into the end right when we went to the commercial. Come on, Graves, do you know who you're talking to? I'm Seth freaking Rollins, baby. I'm going to steal the show. I'm going to stomp Riddle's head into that mat one more time and show him once and for all who the man around here really is. (laughs) Well, Seth, I'm going to prove to you that there's only one man in your marriage, and that's Becky, bro. Gentlemen, unfortunately, we're out of time. Myself and the entire WWE Universe cannot wait till this Saturday. Well, we can wait for that, but there it is, the line, and you said it. Seth Rollins gets the face. He gets the face, and and they go to the break, but then when they come back, the announcers are like, well, wait a minute, folks. There was there was more to what happened uh, earlier. They were still mic'd up after we went to break, and then they play the footage that you're quote unquote not supposed to see. And this is where things started actually sounding like a fucking wrestling argument. Kev, we got that. So we command a commercial break to this. And clear. We good? Yeah. Yeah, good. Go Riddle, you still there? Yeah, I'm still here. Let's talk about my family, man. Let's talk about your family. Oh, wait, you ain't got one because your wife divorced you and took your kids and they don't want to see you. What did you just say? Yeah, you heard me. Where are you? Where are you? I'm here. Come find me. Dude, you don't get I'm not going to beat you up. I'm going to f*** you up, bro. Where the f*** are you? Where are you? Come find me. Where are you? Dude, you don't get I'm going to smash your face in. Yeah, yeah. Keep playing games, bro. Keep playing games. I'm going to f*** you up. And there he goes, storming and off. They storm off. And now th- it actually that was uh, that was edited further than the telecast was because what uh, Seth said was, "Hey Riddle, your wife divorced you and took the kids because they don't want to see your little bitch ass anymore." And they bleeped out "bitch ass" for that clip. And then there was bleeps on. I'm going to fuck you up. Riddle was a little over the top at the end. Uh, but all in all, it was more emotion than you normally say. I don't mean over the top emotional. I mean a little, it was a little, uh, he repeated himself a little too much. But otherwise, it was more natural and more argumentative and definitely more profane. But they bleeped the serious language on USA Network, but you still got the point. They don't. They weren't out there letting their underneath talent have Tourette's and not bleeping anything so they'll get heat with the network so but basically where are you I'm gonna fuck you up well fuck you come and find me do we need more of that shit and less of this dramatic Shakespearean fucking tragedy that we're being subjected to every week you know we've been saying it though week by week there are little things on raw whether it's the talent that shows up or whether it's little things like this. And again, how do you get around the cursing? 
If you want to compete with all the cursing in AEW, do it during a commercial break, then bleep it out yeah. and come back. Good <laughs> there idea. There you go. But it's one of the, I guess, another one of these signs of what's going on under the Triple H regime. Well, and, and names trickling back into the equation were, you know, where they were banned before and words being allowed to be said. You know, it. we said they can't turn the thing on a dime and they can't just come out and, and reverse everything all at the same time or it would be disorienting, but at least there's positive hope. And again, just these little things are little things that Triple H can do or that the company can do to get goodwill back with the fans. They have a second chance to make a first impression because of Vince leaving. So people are willing at this point to blame everything bad on Vince and give at least a short-term chance for these, you know, for Triple H and whoever to rectify things. So, and they're smart enough, apparently, to take advantage of this little honeymoon period. Whereas every time across the street, Tony is serendipitously has somebody getting over or something happening organically or an opportunity to capitalize on something, and they don't do it because either it wasn't in their plans or it's somebody being popular that the EVPs don't want to be popular. So the WWE's winning this, the momentum change in the other direction. They're winning this one right now. What do you do to capitalize on this specific segment and the fact that so many people are buzzing about it and it's getting tweeted out and it's getting put on social media all over the place? The next promo Seth Rollins does, does he go back to being on PCP? <laughs> or is he serious and now he's pissed off and now he's going to be serious for a while? And the same thing with Matt Riddle. He could still I be a stoner, but is he going to be a serious stoner? Or are the pigeons that some people date going to fly out of his ass? I think, well, that's... As long as he doesn't take a tank to the library. Um, I think they're going to try to let him be serious. They wouldn't have done this if they're not a pull apart in the in the parking lot and telling people that Riddle's wife divorced him and took the kids because they don't want to see his bitch ass. I don't think you come back and, you know, do Gaga with whipped cream after that. We'll find out. But um, it's it would be nice if there was some, you know, credibility to... Because think about this. This is what AEW could be doing. Sports-based presentation and or, you know, more realistic action. We already know it's a publicly accepted fact that half of the AEW locker room hates the other half of the locker room's guts. But they're not doing any shoot angles. I think they ought to send two guys out and get in a fight in a restaurant and get arrested. Make the newspapers like the old days. Well, God damn it, I wasn't going to sit there and listen to him fucking crowing about whatever over my shrimp scampi, so I walked up and punched him in the face. Remember we once did on In the News, I think it was in Florida, and it was so preposterous, you kind of figured it out. It was Saul Weingroff got punched in the face by Eddie Graham, like, on the street. Yes. And it was just like, what must have happened was they accidentally ran into each other, and this was the only conclusion. He had to punch him in the face. Yeah. And conveniently, uh, I'm sure Eddie Graham and his partner, maybe Sam Steamboat at the time, were wrestling the Von Brauners. <laughs> and, and golly, imagine what's going to happen down there after Eddie Graham had to go to jail over this. Anyway. <laughs> 
Well, you brought up EVPs before. There's a story that's been breaking for the last day, although it appears that it actually is a story from months ago that, for some reason, is just getting out now. How much have you seen about it? We've received a flood of questions. FTR being removed from the AEW video game. Well, there is, it's like you said, the story has been all over all the sites. It's been on Twitter. This, the links have been being shot back and forth. More of the story starts to come out. At first, we heard that they weren't in the video game, and then it came out that they were originally in, I don't know, what the, is it the prototype or the whatever they call a rough draft of a video game. They were in it when they were still working on it, and I guess they're still working on it and testing it, but now... That is further along, they're not in it anymore. And apparently, from what we understand, when this caused consternation with people going, how can FTR, and rightfully so, how can the top tag team in the company not be in the fucking video game? Well, then FTR is revealed that they knew that they weren't going to be in the game a few months back or whatever. And apparently they were told a reason. They did not give the reason in the comment that I saw, but they were told a reason by Tony. And they're playing it off like, well, it's no big deal. Well, how can they're being professional and they're not trying to contribute to all the drama and strife and backstage manipulation and masturbation that's been going on in this company for however long. So they're trying to just say, oh, it's no big deal, and we're worried about our work and our family. How is it not a big deal that the best tag team in the company is not in the video game? And if there was a good reason, I wonder why they didn't enumerate that reason when they said Tony gave us a good reason and we're not upset about it. I think they're being professional and not trying to stir things up, but let's examine this. Who? From AEW's own lips multiple times, from Tony Khan, from everybody associated with AEW, Brian, who has been the man in charge, the point person of the AEW video game with the developers? Who's been in charge of it? I believe you're referring to their executive vice president, Kenny Omega, or the character that Ty plays. Yes, the Ty's character, Kenny Olivier. And apparently, maybe that's why also he wants to get it right. That's why it's taken three years and cost a hundred blue million dollars of whatever ridiculous cost we heard that it's costing. And it's still not ready, still not got an on sale date. But since he's the man, since he's the guy in charge, we've heard his comments publicly that he was working directly with the developers, right? And that this thing's going to be fantastic. And he's the big video game expert of all these video game nerds sitting in that locker room, twiddling with their joysticks. At least they know where to find those. Give them a woman's anatomy. I'm not sure. Kenny's the guy in charge of it. Well, who? Who? <laughs> who? Are Kenny's bosom buddies and. Long-time close personal friends. Why, that's the Cucamonga kids. The Hardly boys. And you know, it starts to fall into place when you see that earlier this year, FTR was starting to get over so good. 
and the people are starting to react to them, and they're having the match of the year with the Briscoes, and then they have a rematch, and it's a match of the year with the Briscoes. And they even had two of the most palatable Young Bucks matches ever with the Hardly Boys. And all the momentum is on FTR's side, and they win the New Japan Tag Team titles and they win the ring of honor tag team titles and they win the triple a tag team titles and all the signs are right and all the weather forecasts are pointing that my god they're going to do young bucks ftr3 for all the belts and make it the biggest dadgum tag team match it's just ever been on pay-per-view and boy, it looks like that September is going to be the great time for that pay-per-view match because everything's peaking in that direction. And then suddenly, the Hardly Boys get into a three-way tag team match out of nowhere with Swerve and Keith Lee. And who was the other two jabronis in there? When the oh, say jabronis, I think it was Hobbs and Starks, wasn't it? Okay, well, I'm just usually, it's normally AEW talent, so I won't say jabronis if it was Hobbs and Starks. And some way or another, some way or another, the Hardly Boys lose the belts to Lee and Swerve, and if my memory serves me, they didn't even get beaten that match, did they? The I, Hardleys? Don't, I don't think so, no. So they lose the belts without actually getting beat to a middle card tag team that had only been together about six weeks. And then the AEW world tag team titles are then trivialized and marginalized and nobody's talking about them anymore because it's an underneath angle amongst regular people in the company. And meanwhile, we hear that, oh, that's the direction that they were going to go to FTR and Bucks 3. And this, according to Uncle Dave, the uncle of the Bucks, you know, it's so cute when he sends Christmas cards out now every year. Most people send Christmas cards of their family. He sends Christmas cards of the young Bucks when they were babies. And the thing is, he's breastfeeding both of them at the same time. But anyway... <laughs> So Uncle Dave <laughs> had said Why? that they were going to do FTR and Bucks 3 in this big match, but a big angle, an opportunity for a big angle that was more important came up. And that's why they're not going to do it right now. And then we find out by watching their television show that the big angle that came up that prevented the Young Bucks from doing what was right for business and dropping the rubber match to the best tag team in the business and putting all the belts on them because the fans have decided that they are over and they are becoming a drawing card. Instead, the Hardly Boys dropped the belts to the mid-card team and immediately get into the six-man tag team championship tournament and bring back their friend Twinkle Toes. And they're going to be the ones to win the six-man belts. And that was more important than the biggest money-drawn tag team match that they were able to put together. And it just so happens that the aforementioned Twinkle Toes, the bosom buddy and lifelong pal, of the Cucamonga kids, 
just happens to be the guy in charge of the video game that doesn't have FTR in it. Now, hold on. Are you saying you think Kenny Omega deliberately would leave FTR out of the game just because of the Young Bucks issues with FTR? No, I think that he would deliberately leave them out of the game because of his startling realization that he is starting to come to that people are seeing through their lollipop guild bullshit and want real men and real wrestlers and real talent instead of this cosplay trampoline bullshit. And they're all fucking a quiver about that because people are starting to see through them. And they're trying to help minimalize that see-through effort by the fans and the other wrestlers by minimalizing the people that are threats to them and their position. That's what, and also, <laughs> ah, the same guy who came back to partner with them in their journey to the six-man titles lost them 200,000 viewers yeah. on his return from where Mr. Punk and Mr. Moxley had, uh, had set him up. So we didn't get the tag team dream match. What we got was a six-man clusterfuck that 200,000 people were so disgusted by that was even happening that they switched it off. And, you know, I mean, maybe, hey, maybe here's the thing. Maybe they said, well, you know what? All these fucking jack-offs, like the, the Bucks and Kenny and Cutlet and knock it off, and Adam Page, and the Dork Order, and all the kids that like to play together, they should be in the video game because all their fans are 14 years old, and they're going to fucking buy toys and games and puzzles and all kinds of shit. But since FTR are grown adult men, maybe people just want to see them wrestle. They don't care about playing them as a video game. Or... I don't know about that. Maybe here's the thing... Maybe it's just that the whole reason for starting this promotion was because everybody almost involved in it wants to be a character in a video game instead of a real human being. And that's why they started the wrestling promotion so they could turn it into a video game. And all of them can achieve their goddamn lifelong dream of being able to take a tank to the library and fall in love with fucking Hitler as a young schoolgirl or whatever the fuck they do in those goddamn games that we've been talking about. <laughs> so it was all a plot. They started a wrestling promotion <laughs> just to make a video game out of it. And FTR, that, that doesn't work because all they do is wrestle. And they've gotten over. And again, the fans chose them. Despite the booking, despite everything, the fans chose them. And it's been acknowledged far and wide about that. But I want to go back to something before. The idea that, A, they were left off the game. We don't know what the reason is. But like you said, we are, we have no reason not to believe that Kenny Omega is intimately involved with the aspects of the game that include the roster. Guy running the game doesn't have people in it that his buddies don't like because those people are more over than his buddies and make them look bad. Here's the big question. I mean, is, is this, is this, a, is this geometry? Is this advanced calculus? Is this a hard equation to come up with an answer? Well, again, that goes to my question. Who else was left off this game? Is it just FTR? I mean, who else that's that level was left off the game? Are the Lucha Brothers left off the game? One can hope. Or are the Lucha <laughs> Brothers in that game? I'm, try I'm really trying to... I mean, I think Cody's in the game, right? Well, here's the thing. Who is the game is not 
even out yet. It's been years. Because, well, here's the thing. I know Kenny's played a lot of games, but has he ever developed a video game before? Do we know this? I would say no, probably right. But to be fair, he has in his head. Hey, (laughs) you ought to see the list of women I've fucked in my head. But it bears no resemblance to reality. (laughs) So whatever Kenny's doing in his head with his head, the point is they've spent, they said from their own, was it 50 million or was it 80 million that they said they are spending on this game? Let me see what I can find out. Regardless of which figure is accurate, you take some jack off that spent his life playing games that has never been involved in the development or construction of one, that's like fucking taking a guy who's a million-mile flyer on Delta and saying, okay, you, you fly this leg. Pete's tired. You take over as pilot. What? One doesn't equate to the other. So now that means that Tony Khan trusted this phone-sex-voiced, Harpo-Marx-looking... <laughs> blithering simpleton that can't even goddamn wrestle much less fucking perform advanced goddamn mathematics do one of these video games this probably is all this computer shit is is some of the most involved and intricate and complicated and convoluted shit in the world i'll just give you 50 to 80 million dollars and you go come up with a fucking video game and three years later, guy still got his dick in his hand. And the only thing that we know about the video game is who's not in it. So you had a good point. Let's see the roster. Let's see the top-level superstars that are in this fucking game that should be in it over the top of the best tag team in the company. I'm finding different things. Some say that it was a $10 million investment. A lot seemed to be indicating a $20 million investment in the video game division, and they partnered with I heard with more Games. than that. Remember we, months ago when they were talking about where is this thing? They said, oh, because that's why AEW wasn't profitable yet, because they'd spent so much money on the video game. So, so where is it? Who's on it? How much is this thing going to end up costing? And... If you spend $30 million on a video game, what what does a video game sell for? Like 60 bucks. Okay, so that means if they make, if they get half the money, which is ridiculous, on a product like that being sold nationally, that would be a ridiculous amount. But they'd have to sell fucking a million of them to make a profit. They don't have a million people watching the TV show for free. To be fair, and I'm not saying this is my philosophy, but I believe part of what they're doing or what they've said publicly is that this is a long-term investment where this is game one, but they're trying to build a mechanism for future video game endeavors. Oh, good. Well, that way when... Vince buys all the intellectual property. Well, not Vince, Vince. but with Triple H. Oh, what a comeback. Sorry. What a comeback. Uh, it's like Kleenex and Coke and things. It's a brand name. Uh, when Triple H buys the intellectual property of AEW and 
you know, the, the video catalog and possibly agrees to, you know, keep up the, uh, the upkeep on Tony Khan's gravesite or whatever the deal is, then maybe they can sell. And now we'll release this video game of these stupid douchebaggy twats doing video game things. But yeah, I, so I've, I've connected the dots here. Hardly boys jealous. Better team comes along. They can't compare. Fans are fickle and throwing them over. So they get their buddy twinkle toes, take the guys out of the video game so that they'll penalize them and they won't get a check off the game or whatever. And because douchebags do douchebaggy things, that's what twinkle toes does. And then FTR plays it off like pros and adults because they don't want to come out and say, yeah, they did this specifically because they're fucking jealous of us and they want to fuck with us. But they're too good for that. I agree with you for the most part. The only thing I disagree with you on is based on everything we've just heard, there's nothing really pointing to the Bucks if they were, if it was done on their behalf. No, I, I don't, I think it was This was Omega, behalf, if I anyone. Don't, yeah, yeah I, I don't think they specifically said, hey, fuck with him, guy. I think more like, Kenny just say, you know what? I'll just take him out. Because, you know, we, we got to stick together, all of us douchebags. You know, they've got the this this niche audience. Everybody loves to use that word lately, niche audience. But that's what, the lollipop guild has they have a niche audience the bullet club was a niche audience some people just thought it had something to do with guns and it was a cool shirt but the bullet club was a niche audience the elite was a niche audience twinkle toes mcfinger bang is a niche audience yeah no and one talks about hot topic anymore you know why because all those shirts are on clearance and now they have mlw shirts so how much money are they really making <laughs> on wrestling shirts at hot topic but that's what I'm just saying. That's the thing. It was a, a a small group of ardently devoted people that like douchebags that act like video game characters. But that's not a lot of people, and it ain't going to fucking carry a company. And when you have to get actual real people involved as fans that want shit to make sense and don't want the stupid, silly childish nonsense or the flipping and flying and felching about or whatever you you get you get past that million people and old harpo old twinkle toes and the rest of his buddies they're lost they can't relate because they're all socially awkward you got you got the bucks who are the smarmy smug self-righteous obnoxious right-wing fuckwits that are all Republican and religious. You got Twinkle Toes that he's a, he's a weeb. He's a weeb. We've we've talked about the weebs. We've got the lowdown on the weebs lately. He's very fucking strange, and he lives in his little corner of his world where he can play on his little video games and and only talk to Japanese girls under fourteen. People on his same intellectual level. He's very strange. <laughs> he's, he's a very strange individual. Many people have said that. Yes, they have. And and so, you know, I'm not surprised that they don't know how to actually gather an audience of normal, rational people. 
But uh, but that's what you get. Tony should take all these guys, and I'm being serious, put them all in Ring of Honor, and let them do their own thing. The Bucks, the Dark Order, Omega, Adam Page, Excalibur. You got Cole Cabana over there, and I read in the Observer that Nick Jackson's the reason he has a job, so it works out perfectly. Put them all in Ring of Honor, and let's see how it does. And then just have AEW as a wrestling show, as opposed to whatever it is, whatever it's been lately. If you put all those people in Ring of Honor, then you've got to go back to Go Fight Live for the pay-per-views, because then the fans would actually be rooting for them to not be on the air. Well, let's move away from this, but for the record, I was the first person to tell you that Go Fight Live had no idea what the fuck they were doing. Well, then I was the first person to agree with you, I believe, as you recall. And it was just, we couldn't get anybody else to fucking agree with us until we had five more days of black screens and apologies to make. Well, Jim, we don't know who's in the WWE video game because uh, of all the video games I play, wrestling games are not any of them, but SmackDown! is some sort of weird transition from whatever I just said. And I understand you watched some of it. <laughs> but SmackDown <laughs> is a thing that happened in the world last week. So it must have something to do with fucking oily crankshafts. Okay. There was indeed the laying down of the smacketh on, uh, this was this past Friday, August 26th. And... I'm watching for the improvements and we're seeing a couple of things, but I got to be honest with you. Did you see how this program started? And I, I know somebody's going to say Ray Mysterio, but the first thing you see on network TV at eight o'clock at night on SmackDown is Ricochet headed to the ring. And maybe they need to put a mask on him. As a matter of fact, wasn't Ricochet? Lucha Underground. Well, wasn't he also mentioned as the Mighty Mouse, or am I thinking of somebody else? Vince was wrapped up in that Mighty Mouse thing for fucking years. Did he wear a mask on Lucha Underground? Yeah, he was. Was he Prince Puma? Was that him? Well, whatever he was, he ought to. It looked good too. Put it back on. Yeah. I mean, you know, again. I get the vibe from Ray Mysterio Jr. that he was a wrestler, that he was naturally undersized and had to make up for it by inventing innovative offense. I look at Ricochet and I see him flipping for the sake of doing fucking flips, like almost everybody that's imitating the flips without the reason for the flips. But anyway, Ricochet versus Baron Corbin. Baron Von Corbin, as a matter of fact. And within 30 seconds of this match, Ricochet did a backflip in the ring while Baron Von Corbin was out on the floor. Did you see? He just he just decided to just run, flip into the ropes, flip back, do a backflip, land on his feet, do a little bow. And what the, they, they don't even bother to establish anymore the guys. But Corbin is bigger. He's going to muscle the fucking little guy around. So then the little guy pulls out a fancy fucking move or what? They just go straight to the flipping. And they went through a break. By the way, the, also on network TV, the first thing you see at eight o'clock is Ricochet headed to the ring. Then it's Ricochet versus Corbin. Like that would be 
a main event in any arena in the country. Then they go to the break six minutes into the show in this match, and the break spot was Ricochet doing another backflip off the top turnbuckle to the floor, and he went straight over Corbin's head, and Corbin fell down anyway. And so when they came back from the break, I've zoned out, but Ricochet won the match. One, two, three, clean in the middle with a backflip off the top rope that poor Corbin had to lay there forever for. He was flopping up like a fish. He was like, should I turn over? Should I act like I'm trying to get out of the way? Whatever the fuck. And then finally, a boom. One, two, three. So who'd Corbin piss off? Oh, I don't know, but I'm pretty sure that the transition from Baron Corbin to, what was it? Homeless Corbin. Did he, he had a different name for a while, too. King Corbin. He was a king. He was king. Then he was homeless. Then he got happy. Then he got happy. I'm pretty sure that screams of Vince McMahon was really into it. So maybe other people aren't. Well, there you go. On the positive side, the Drew McIntyre package. And they did two parts in this. They're pushing him heavy because Clash from the Castle or Clash at the Castle is this weekend. I still, I didn't even know they were, they were coming. I've, I've had to, you know, rent some folding chairs and put up a gazebo in the garden just to for all the guests. But um, they did a package on Drew McIntyre from childhood and telling the story again, his early success, but it was too much too fast. He thought it was going to be easy, and then he got backlash in the WWF, and his mother got sick and passed away, and he got fired for being too immature and not ready to handle it. And that was where we left that package. But at least it makes the guy seem like a real fucking person. They do these packages and these sit-downs and these looks. They got a great production company or production crew there in in-house in WWE it's just the restrictions of creative have been a problem with the guys original performances you can do great packages because you can take the best five words the guy said out of that shitty material you gave him but anyway is it too late for Drew McIntyre has he settled in as just one of the guys because of the things they've done with him First, they were going to push him. Then he got beat again, and then blah, 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 back and forth. What do you think? I don't think it's too late. He showed fire in that promo we talked about where he talked about being a wrestler who likes to wrestle. People talked about it. It was the most fire we ever saw from him in a promo, or at least in a long time. A lot of people were ready to give up on Roman Reigns a few years ago because of the way he'd yeah. been used, because of yeah. the way he'd been used, the way he'd been written for, and then things got better. I don't think it's too late for Drew McIntyre. Is it too late for Karrion Cross now? Or or are we just, is everybody just going to, okay, we'll go ahead and forget that false start the last time on Raw with the bondage outfit and no scarlet and everything. Maybe, you know, because it, it didn't last that long. He might have a chance. He's got a good voice and a delivery, and I'm not sure that I don't like him better with hair because it's different from, now everybody that wants to be looked at as a badass is bald because of Austin, right? Remember, it used to be a the fucking worst thing you could do to somebody, a threat. I'm going to shave your head. We're going to have a hair match. And guys would like do anything, including wearing wigs and toupees and 
creams and lotions and potions not to lose their hair. Now everybody shaves their fucking head on purpose. But, um, you know, they had him up high in the arena with Scarlett and he's responding to Drew. There's going to be issues between them. So obviously Cross is being, is already in the plans to be a main event guy. And this is what I'm saying. Even though he's been there before, they're trying to act like it didn't happen. It was a fever dream of Vince's after some Welsh rarebit. So when he comes in now, he's got the girl, he's got the look, they're giving him the chance to talk, and he's talking about a top guy. He's interacting with a main event guy. That's the way the fans tell whether the new guy's a main event guy or not, by who he's interacting with. If he's wrestling competitively against Barry Horowitz, or he's cutting promos on you know, Scotty too hottie or whatever, he's a middle card guy. But if he's talking about or to or interacting with a main event guy and he's beating middle card guys convincingly, he's a top guy. It's not that fucking hard to figure out. <sighs> they had a four-team Girls fatal four-way to replace the injured team in the Women's Tag Team Championship tournament that replaced the first injured team in the Tag Team Championship tournament. And it went six minutes. Moving on. Who won? I don't know. I don't remember who was in it. I didn't even write it down. No, seriously, they had one team in the tournament, Nikita Lyons and somebody, and they pulled them out because of injury before they actually had the tournament. So they replaced them with another team who won their first round match, and then one of them got injured. So now they had this fatal four-way to replace the team that replaced the team in the tournament that chased the cat that ate the rat that lived in the house that Vince built. And then here came... <laughs> Seamus and Ridge Holland and their little dog, Butch, the brawling brutes. Can we do something about this gimmick next? Is this the most ridiculous looking thing between the caps and the outfits like they're a fucking street urchins in a Dickens novel and the brawling brute and Butch? Remember everybody said Pete Dunne was going to be a great fucking top wrestling star. Oh, boy. Uh, apparently, in this situation, the brawling brutes are the baby faces because old Seamus is cutting a promo on Gunther for the Intercontinental title, and he talks for 30 seconds, and then the music hits, and here comes Gunther and Ludwig. And so, again, I guess by process of elimination... Seamus and, and Holland and Butch are from the United Kingdom. We have never been in a war with them, but we have been in a war with Germany. So in this case, even though they're heels, the, the British folks are the baby faces. And I love Walter Gunther, and everybody knows this. And he has he has energy, but Old Seamus talking to Gunther, there was no energy, there was nothing new. It's the same shit they've been doing, the same kind of material. They badly need announcers 
to to be the host of this show, to be in control of the show, to control the pace of the interviews. Because listening to Seamus here is like listening to the color green. Just what there wasn't. It just they need an announcer, a Jim Ross or somebody to be doing conducting the interview between some of these people that don't know how to fucking kick it into a higher gear to stir them up. I've done it in Ring of Honor at OVW. Kevin Kelly's done it with a variety of places when he's, you know, been helping out with camps and seminars and et cetera. You get in there and just the announcer is the host of the show. The announcer is interviewing one talent that's a, whether it's a baseball player, a basketball player, whatever, some other talent has an issue with something that's said and comes down to confront it. Now the announcer turns into the shit disturber. Well, now Brian just said so-and-so and such-and-such. How do you react to that? And that guy reacts. So, well, what, now, wait a minute, because so-and-so said, and you're the middleman. And you're facilitating the conversation instead of two guys standing there with microphones reciting material at each other. So that's another change they need to make to get back to a wrestling program from whatever it is that they've been doing for the past 20 years. So Gunther was trying hard on the promo, but nobody gives a... Do you think anybody gives a shit to see the brawling brutes at all or any of the brawling brutes wrestle Gunther? I don't think so. Gunther's great. I think Seamus is as stale as a month-old bagel, Brian. Well, that's a good comparison. If you wanted to put it in better New York terms, Seamus is like having John Franco on the roster at the end of the 90s. He's been there a long time. We've seen various iterations of him. Nothing personal, but I think he's been there a long time and maybe he's one of the figures that seems a little more stale to me than others just because I've been seeing him nonstop for over a decade. And if is not over right? a decade, it seems like it. It seems like. Is it is it time, what you're saying, is it's time for us to miss him as soon as he goes away? Unless he's going to have he, a job for life. Did he uh, save the tapes from a burning car? I mean, I don't know. <laughs> so finally, this, I, again, this is the first time that I've seen Gunther in an embarrassing segment that I just wish they hadn't done with him because normally he doesn't get any of this on him. But apparently their brilliant idea was for Gunther and Seamus to stand face-to-face -face and have a stare down while there's a fight going on around them because suddenly as they're doing that, Butch jumps on Ludwig and they have one of the more ridiculous fake fights I've ever seen throwing fake punches that aren't landing or even connecting. It's just the meaningless sound and motion thing. And Gunther and Seamus are not even blinking. And then the other stooge gets in it. Um, uh, Holland. And they're... All the three stooges are fighting, and this is going on forever, while the stars of this thing don't move and just stare at each other. And it was a ludicrous visual. And then, somehow the three stooges, while they're fighting, they get in a position where they have to fucking kind of pull themselves back up to their feet on 
Gunther and Seamus so that they can hold them back without moving. It was the most ridiculous thing. And that's the last thing you need to do to Gunther is put him in a phony-looking proposition. Because the one thing that makes him stand apart from everybody else is he looks serious as a heart attack, and when he hits you, you can't see through it, and he seems like a top fucking guy that will not, as Luthez would say, brook any of this foolishness. So when you put him in foolishness, you take away the one thing that makes him different than almost everybody else. What'd you think? I didn't see much of SmackDown, but I've been seeing Gunther on there for the last several weeks. I've seen a little more of him than you because I've watched more SmackDown of late. Just so happy you decided to do a full review of the one week I didn't watch the whole show. Well, you've had shit going on. A bit, yeah. I think the problem is, look, if someone's stale and you put someone with them, makes them stale too, unless, you know, they're, the, they're Ric Flair and it is prime. I don't want to see Gunther mixing with Sheamus. I want to see Gunther mixing with someone else who's fresh. As soon as you put him with Sheamus, it drags him down. And again, it's nothing personal. The guy's been there for 10 years or something. I'm not into the whole butch thing other than it's funny every now and then. If Russo was being paid to consult USA Network for Raw, who can we blame for Fox's SmackDown? Well, I, th- I think we just have to blame the company because Fox is probably smart enough not to hire, you know, fucking random goofs that send them begging emails. Um, There was one preposterous thing or a part of this program that I actually did like because the people involved, Sami Zayn and Roman Reigns are the highlight of this program. And... It was a preposterous conversation that they had with stupid material, but they do it so well. And it's almost like, shit, this this could actually be good if they had talented actors doing this shit, or if they just decided to wrestle or write for wrestlers, one or the other. But the uh, Jey Uso doesn't like Sammy, and they're pissed at each other. And Roman appreciates Sammy for last week interjecting himself and taking a Claymore kick. And tonight he needs a favor. He needs Drew McIntyre distracted. Yes, sir. Boom. Uh, Then the Women's Tag Team Championship Tournament continued with Sonya and Natalya against Ilea and Raquel Gonzalez Rodriguez de la Garcia Jones. And that match happened. And then did you see anything of the bus incident? I have no idea what you're even talking about. No. Okay. Well, the Dupree's poor LA Knight, Eli Drake and his sister and Mansway and Monsoor were in the back of the arena doing a photo shoot and they see and hear a a bus, like a tour bus with flashing lights and playing hit rose music. And they thought, well, this is a distraction. We're pissed at this bus. Dramatic foreshadowing. Now we go to the ring. Kofi Kingston and Xavier Woods in the ring doing an interview. And Xavier was in a wheelchair. And by the way, no, folks, he ain't really hurt. And nobody believed he was really hurt. 
This is a setup. But as Bobby Eaton would say, if Bobby Eaton saw someone, if there was a wheelchair sitting around the back of the arena or in some breezeway or in anywhere you were and somebody sat in that wheelchair, Bobby Eaton would fucking turn white. And he was, you're burning the bread on yourself. Because fuck around, fuck around pretty soon you won't be around. Sit in a wheelchair when you don't need to. You are tempting fate. Something bad's going to happen to you. Well, in this case, what bad happened to all of us was we had to watch this interview. They were in normal street clothes and they were low key and they were talking about underestimating the Viking warriors and last week and they got their asses kicked. And even worse than that, the Vikings burned boxes of bootios and our unicorn horns in that phony looking Viking ritual that we talked about last week that was phony because of the Viking warriors or raiders or whoever they are. They're trying to make them look more adult and kind of more cool, but they they speak like they've memorized this shit that they've worked out rather than they're real people. So they can't do the promo. But the New Day is here is, is team, teasing that their team is done. And then, of, of course, here come the Viking Raiders, and they do the same thing. They recite memorized lines that are fake and bad acting because they're apparently these guys are not actors. So don't make them act and put them in a position where they have to do shit like that. But they come out of the ring and menace the new day and then turn their back on Xavier Woods because he's in a wheelchair and start to menace Kofi. And then Woods stands up out of the wheelchair with two kendo sticks that he comes from out from under his blanket. And it wasn't in an exciting way. It was he stood up, took the blanket off, and then tried to pitch Kofi a kendo stick, and Kofi fumbled it. But they grabbed it, and they wore the Raiders out with the kendo sticks. And then the Raiders leave. And this, it... Bad taste with the wheelchair and bad acting on everybody else's part. Did you see any of this? No, because even if I had time, I would not watch a Viking Raiders segment. I hate the New Day. The New Day are my least favorite WWE wrestling combo for years. I've not liked them. Yeah. Well, there you go. Well, let's get into the main event. But right before the main event, remember I talked to you about the bus incident. Right. I still don't know what happened. Well, the Dupree folks, the maximum male models were disrupted by the bus being loud and flashy, and then Los Lotharios, Jose and El Gran, they come (laughs) in and say, well, we'll take care of this problem for you. And they had cans of spray paint. And so when we come back later on, we see that the Lotharios have... This was the most neat vandalization I've ever seen. They wrote Hit Row Sucks in big, neat block letters across with black spray paint across the side of the bus. But it was it it wasn't exactly vandalized. But Hit Row walks into the fucking screen and says, Hey, good job, but guess what? That's not our bus. What? Then they walk off. And the door of the bus opens and the street prophets get out. 
and they look at their bus and they go, what the fuck? And then the heels go, oh, shucks. And then everybody just walked away. That was the end of it. Everybody just walked away. And I guess the big point is everyone has a bus, apparently. Everybody's got a bus. So now it's time for the main event. Um, after they did the second half of the Drew package that we talked about earlier, it made him look like more of a star. But then Drew McIntyre versus Sami Zayn. And I enjoyed this until the sports entertainment angle at the end. Because Zayn knows what he's doing. And he can work, and Drew McIntyre bumped him around like a ping-pong ball. This was a a top guy versus Weasley middle heel match that worked just fine. And they worked it that way. And Zane would take over. Like One time he took over, he kicked the middle rope into McIntyre's nuts. And the other time, McIntyre was going to take him with a superplex or whatever, and he got a sunset powerbomb off the top. But he got heat without it being illogical that this rail-thin, you know, weaselly middle-card heel is going to be dominating physically the guy that's in the main event at the pay-per-view this weekend. Finally, McIntyre makes a big comeback, and he's ready for the Claymore kick, and the Usos distract him, and Zane gets a two-count, and then that doesn't work, and they just kind of stood around for a second, <laughs> and then... McIntyre levels Sami Zayn, levels both the Usos, hits the kick on Sami, one, two, three. So it's like, I guess who's going to take one first is where they were standing around. As soon as he gets the win, here comes Roman. And he hits the ring and he starts beating the shit out of McIntyre. But then McIntyre posts Roman and turns around and beats up the Usos some more. Turns back around and Roman Reigns spears Drew McIntyre. And at that point, the Usos go out and get chairs, and they come back in, and they start wearing McIntyre out with the chairs. And now here's the problem. Now they've gone from a decent match, and they've got the big stars in the ring, and they're doing an angle for the pay-per-view this Sunday, and it goes straight into fucking sports fucking entertainment. They wear Drew McIntyre out with chairs. And they're kicking the shit out of him three-on-one, four-on-one. Nobody's trying to stop it. No bell is ringing. No referees getting involved. No security being physical. No baby faces. Does Drew McIntyre not have a goddamn friend in the world? Is he the biggest uncircumcised prick that could ever live? That nobody from that locker room would come out and try to help him? It went on forever. They took their time. I've mentioned criminals committing a crime in broad daylight. Taking their time is not a visual that resonates with most people. There should be a sense of urgency. Get it done while we can. Somebody's going to try to stop us. But no, they knew nobody was going to try to stop them because it was fucking phony. It's being allowed by the promotion. And that's why it's disgusting heat. One of the first things I learned when I got into wrestling business, there's cheap heat, there's real heat, there's disgusting heat. And this was disgusting heat because now the heels 
They beat him over and over with chairs. They run him into the desk. They picked up the stairs, hit him with the stairs. They roll him in the ring. Roman Reigns chokes him out with a rear naked choke. Then gets a chair and sets it up and sits on top of him. This wasn't heat. This was too much. This was not real. It was disgusting heat termed that because the people don't get mad and want to buy a ticket to see somebody get even. They get disgusted. Because why is nobody trying to stop this? The first thing that anybody would logically think is why is nobody trying to help him? Why is nobody trying to stop this? Where are his friends? Where are the other baby faces? Why is nobody ringing a bell? Why are the referees not coming out? Why is security? What the fuck? The answer is because the promotion is allowing this because it's all set up and therefore it's disgusting heat because it doesn't get the proper reaction from people. I want to pay to see somebody get even. It just disgusts them. And that's sports entertainment. So they continue try to make small changes, but they can't do a goddamn show closing Mid-South Wrestling, heels playing King of the Hill, everybody's trying to stop something, people are standing and screaming to the point where somebody's going to jump over the rail and try to do something themselves. They can't do that. They can just do this goddamn caca. So, they got a ways to go. Well, that goddamn caca was SmackDown for the 26th. Jim, speaking of things that disgust you. Yes. Sorry to stay on this topic, but enough people sent this over, and I forgot to even talk to you about this. The clip of the wrestler, if you want to call him that, who flips around dough like a pizza man during his match. Have you seen this? I have seen one second of it on Twitter. Again, there's a guy in some, in a, it's like an empty concrete block building with, they've set up chairs where there's eight people watching these allegedly professional wrestling matches. And some guy is in the corner of the ring facing off with his opponent and spinning the pizza dough like they do in the pizzerias. That's the way you speak Italian, according to Peter Griffin. You just go at a boot to bopti. And I'm not going to watch that. I'm not going to click on that link. I'm not going to try to find out what promotion it is or what this guy's name is or who gives a shit. I don't give a fuck. Because, again, the more that we talk about these assholes, the more they think they've accomplished something. But, yeah, it was an actual... And he had the Italian mustache, and he looked like... You know, he'd been floating in the river for three days. He had a mustache. I don't know. An Italian mustache. What's well, that? you know, like the, like you, uh, the, the, on the pizza box, the fucking Italian guy with the chef's hat and the little fucking Italian mustache that's holding up the pizza on the pizza box. That's what he looked like. That was his gimmick. He's trying for that. And physically, he looked like a goddamn, you know, reject from fucking sperm donors or something. And no, I'm not, because it's just, it's ridiculous. It's all these fucking jack-offs living out their fantasies of being wrestlers because they think everybody can do this now. Everybody can play. And I just, again, I would love to see the reaction today, much less than the 70s or 80s, 
But today, if it happened in football, if some team in the NFL said, hey, but just because it'll make some idiots watch our program, we're going to bring this guy dressed in blue jeans and a jean jacket with his hands in his pockets and some goofy-looking mirrored shady sunglasses. We're going to have him... <laughs> shady <run> sunglasses. <laughs> shady sunglasses. We're going to have him run the fucking you know, kickoff return on every fucking time we do that because it'll be something for the ratings. What do you think the football players would think? What do you, would the football players want to kick the shit out of that fucking guy? More than likely. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, that's the, unfortunately, that's the problem with wrestling is now the guys in the locker room don't want to kick the shit out of these fucking people like they did 40 years ago. The football players still would in 2022, but the wrestlers are too big of a pussies to kick the shit out of these people and send them on their way. That's why, as fans, we've got to watch them. There are some wrestlers who do want to kick the shit out of them, for the record. But, they're, but they want they want to, but they won't. I, I submit for your approval that the goddamn football players would have enough honor and integrity and respect for their fucking sport and profession that they would kick the shit out of the football player trying to fucking play football with his hands in his pockets. But the wrestlers are too pussyish to do that these days. Well, to be fair, the football player has an agent. The football player has a union. The football player has a lot more leeway than a wrestler does in terms of employment. I would think also it, he would a football player to get fired if he kicked the shit out of the fucking guy on, on the team also, but it would be a goddamn statement. You got a book deal out of it. Maybe there a radio go. show and some stuff. Because here's the thing. If you've, if you've worked and slaved all your life to be a professional wrestler and you end up in a company where they don't give any more of a shit about the business than to employ some, somebody like that, do you really want to work there anyway? Make some news. Get over with a significant portion of the fandom. Kick the shit out of the fucking guy in the locker room when you give your notice. At least that way people would remember you fondly. All right, Jim. Well, speaking of football players would do it. All right. The football expert, Jim Madden here. But Jim, you know, when it comes to <laughs> kicking the crap out of people, Perhaps you're one of our fine sponsors and you're saying, hey, where are our spots this week? I think they forgot to do them. We want to sue. Well, in that case, <laughs> I know exactly who you can call and what his number is and what his website is and what his theme music sounds like. Call Steven the rest boy i tell you and if you get your ass kicked in the locker room because you were jacking around on a football team and not taking your business seriously then he can help you there too that's right i'm talking about the one and the only stephen p new at newlawoffice.com 888-692-8084 the only attorney that i can think of in the history of the united states of america that is actually forced one of our states to declare a state of emergency 
over just the threat of Stephen P. New and New Law Office looking into their various misappropriations and misproprieties. You've heard about this big deal in West Virginia last week. Brian, I know it was week before now. I know last week you were off. You may not have been keeping up with all the West Virginia news, but Governor Jim Justice, what a gimmick name if ever. He, he looks like, his name sounds like Sid Justice, but he looks like old Charlie Harbin from Chattanooga. He's got hollow, deep-set eyes with black rings. He's a fucking weebly-wobbly-looking satchel-assed guy. He's a weeb? Gray hair. He's not a weeb. He's a weebly-wobbly-looking fella. And the governor declared a state of emergency in the state of West Virginia because of the horrible, horrid living conditions in the state's jails and prisons and penal institutions. And they're claiming that it's from short staffing and overcrowding and all these other things, but they're giving the inmates inedible food and tainted water and they're overcrowding them. And they're, it, 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 I'm telling you, it's getting to the point where you can't even go to jail anymore and have a good time. And Stephen P. <laughs> New sent a communication to the state on behalf of some hundreds of the inmates who have been frankly, just inconvenienced by this horrible, horrible living condition that they're in. And now the go- the uh, state has declared a disaster area over this. They're trying to restaff the prisons. They're trying to call uh, people in to work overtime. But it's too late. It's too late. Stephen P. New is going to yank a knot in their tail and bring them to justice. Just like he's doing in states all over the country, not just limited to West Virginia. I don't even have my list in front of me. but. Stephen has cases in Louisiana, in Ohio, I believe Indiana, Tennessee may be coming up. There's something going on down in Texas. He's all over the place. And he can get you the the justice, no pun intended on the governor's name, he can get you the justice that you deserve and the compensation that you deserve. Let's say, for example, you're not lucky enough to be an inmate currently in a, in a jail or prison in West Virginia. Let's say you don't qualify for this suit that he's about to file. You've still got some time now. If you want to hurry up and commit a crime and ask for a speedy trial, you can get into these jails too. Don't commit been, a crime. Let's not well, encourage these, this. These inmates are going to be farting through silk when Stephen gets finished with the state of West Virginia. So you might want to be one of them. But if you're not lucky enough to currently be incarcerated in the state of West Virginia, if you've been wrongfully terminated, if you have been damaged or injured through someone's negligence or just not paying attention, if if you have been poisoned by evil companies and their, their chemicals that they let off into the groundwater, all these type of things, Stephen P. New and New Law Office can handle for you and bring you the justice that you deserve. Uh, once again, not the governor of West Virginia justice, but your justice, the justice that you deserve. It's justice. Just for you. Just justice. Stephen P. New, newlawoffice.com, 888-692-8084. What a battle that would be for the governorship. Justice versus new. Ooh. And I'll tell you what, by cracky, I'll vote for Steve. I'll move to West Virginia and vote for Stephen P. New. That's what I'll do. As a matter of fact, I'll do my patriotic duty and I will vote early and often for Stephen P. New. 
Maybe they can erect a statue of you in Beckley. I think they've already got one. Actually, it's my picture on the post office wall, and it says, do not serve this man. All right, well, let's serve this man a few more questions before we wrap things up here this week. Oh, by the way, hold on one second. I've got, a, I've got an email i got to jump in with here. Hold on one second. Dear Jim and Brian, my name is Noah, and I grew up in Carrollton, Kentucky, about 40 minutes from Louisville. I'm a member of the cult, and I wanted to reach out as an openly bisexual, non-binary person. I know what most of those words mean. I have never construed anything you guys have said as homophobic. When it comes to stunts like that freak who jacked off while wrestling <laughs> the Cincinnati plumber, I see that as much more phobic and an issue as it's using gay things for shock. Thank you for calling out the bullshit as it's hard to watch these assholes make marginalized groups look like sick freaks. Tony Khan should really put a fucking stop to that kind of crap that his wrestlers, in quotation marks, pull in full view of the public. And yes, you have my full permission to read this on the air. Well, thank you from Noah from Carrollton, Kentucky. Where's that in Kentucky? That's about 40 miles from here, as he just mentioned. Northeast. Right up 71. All right. There you go. I just wanted to bring that up. Well, let's come back down 71. Did you have any other emails you'd like to bring? Well, I, I can do a couple more if you yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Remember when we said uh, we read the letter of credit out of my files that Joe Petticino's Nigerian backer, Olu Oliami, had presented as proof that he had $25 million to invest in wrestling when they were going to start the Global Wrestling Federation on ESPN in 1992. We read that letter of credit that uh, Joe was smoking the hopium on and everybody in wrestling was believing, right? And the letter of credit, hold on, I got, I got it right over here. The letter of credit was drawn on the First Fidelity Revenue Trust Limited at 1300 Jefferson Boulevard in Warwick, Rhode Island, according to their letterhead. Now, we also mentioned that this was it's actually 1990. So 32 years ago, there was no internet, there's no Google Maps. You couldn't just look shit up. Unless you were in Warwick, Rhode Island, you had no goddamn idea, right? What, what, what was at 1300 Jefferson Boulevard? Well, now somebody is writing in from Warwick, Rhode Island, Brian. Aloha, Jim and Brain. That's either go. a misspelling or Freudian. Um, I've been listening to the show for a little over a year now and was shocked to hear my hometown mentioned last week. I was born in and have been a resident of Warwick, Rhode Island for over 30 years. I can confirm that the building... <laughs> at 1300 Jefferson Boulevard is not currently and never has been a bank. As Brian suggested by looking at pictures of the area, it is an industrial area and was even more so previously. Obviously, this was part of the lie along with the fake letter of credit. Love the show, DJ in Warwick, Rhode Island. Well, you don't know who to trust anymore. First Fidelity... Savings Limited Revenue Trust Incorporated didn't really exist. Holy shit. 
Who would have ever thought? You know, we've been working for a while on putting together, and we're going to probably have some uh, questions to fill in the gaps on the show in the next few weeks. But Jace and I have been putting together a omnibus of 1991 of the various places you went to while no one realized you were setting up Smoky Mountain Wrestling. And it is interesting when you think about how many of these hopeful promoters, I guess you could say, there were at that time, because you didn't do anything with Herb Abrams, luckily, but no. doing stuff with Joel Goodhart, you're talking here about the Petticino thing, and it just makes you feel bad that Joe Petticino got took like this. And, and, and let, me, let me stop you. I got to be honest. Uh, didn't do anything with Herb Abrams because I saw his product and also heard about him, thought he was fucking moron. Uh, with Joel Goodhart, I wasn't that enamored of Joel as a person, but it was a chance to go to Philadelphia every month or two and and go to Ribbit with Dennis Corluzzo and Frank Chili. So that's why we did those shots. And Joe Petticino, I'd worked with him in WCW, and I'd enjoyed his Superstars of Wrestling block in Atlanta before I'd ever even met him. And I had no visions that you know i was going to get a contract with global wrestling federation or that i was ever even going to be doing that full time but i was helping him you know get his tv off the ground i you know and that's the thing i didn't believe in the the money like a lot of people did but i was doing my own thing and it wasn't about money at that time but well and what, so what well, I, i'm just saying so i i liked those i liked joe as a person but i as soon as i saw the first show i said well there ain't 25 million dollars involved in this go ahead and of course you also work for dave lehigh vwa we recently yeah. talked about famously gordon scazzari that tv taping up in massachusetts oh god damn and i'll tell you what um david lehigh was just okay it was up in richmond virginia and we were living in charlotte but the way we got hooked up with scazzari was at that time, you know, the, I had never done independent shows before because from the time I'd gotten a business, I'd always been working for a territory. And but when Scazzari was contacting everybody and he called me, that's when Eddie Gilbert was the booker and all these names were going to be there. And I thought I talked to him on the phone and I said, OK, this guy's obviously in over his head, but at the same point, there was somebody else that was supposed to be his assistant, I forget what his title was or whatever, that sounded like a bit more of an adult. And I thought, okay, let's see what happens. But again, I'm not trying to, hindsight's 2020. I But I'm not trying to say that, you know, I was the brightest person in the world, but I made these shows because either it was a chance of it'll make a little payoff. If it wasn't, I didn't think it was going to be embarrassing. Found out later on, Scazzari was embarrassing. Or do a favor for friends or, you know, get Stan a couple of shots while we were setting up Smoky Mountain or whatever. But I never understood why that guys went to this these links to ingratiate themselves with these people that it was obvious had no fucking idea of what they were doing, nor were going to be able to follow through with it. And sure enough, Scazzari had inherited a fairly decent amount of money from whoever died. Was it his, I can't remember his parents or whoever it was. And he did a one house show and one TV taping and was pretty much, as I recall, fucking institutionalized in a mental institution about six months later and went through all of his money. 
And it was, you know, when Eddie Gilbert took the money for booking the show, faxed the formats, never even actually showed up. And everybody else then was taking advantage of the poor fucking guy. But, you know, I've just, I've never understood how guys in the wrestling business could go into these things thinking that this was going to be a legitimate fucking dish. Shane Douglas was the one telling me about that Wilpon guy. 10 years ago, oh, it's going to be, he's going to give all the guys insurance and benefits and all that. Sure he is. Sure he is. No, he's not. Yeah, You're all Madoff. fucking nuts. He, whether whoever made off with the money, this was never going to happen. Tony Khan's the only billionaire Mark that's ever actually really been a billionaire. All the rest of them have just been Marks. But the boys would believe it and they would go whole hog head first into it and then crash with the ship. I made a few of those shots because it was something to do and shots for staying and keeping busy while we were setting up Smoky Mountain Wrestling. But I never believed that any of those things were going to materialize if, as the initial story, you know, first came out. Did you ever fear that if you didn't keep Stan busy, you may lose him for Smoky Mountain? Well, no, because he didn't really want to do what the fuck that I was booking him for. He was, I'm not trying to insinuate that Stan was living hand to mouth and needed money. I wanted to get him a few payoffs and keep him busy and just whatever the fuck. But busy was like a couple weekends a month at that point. He, He didn't do anything. He didn't book anything on his own. And he didn't give a fuck whether I, you know, got us anything or not really at that point. He was happy to be taking a break off the road. Did anyone ask you to book, you know, whatever they had? I mean, some people actually did have small TV, but did anyone ever ask you to book in that year off? I can't remember. I mean, there was no, there was no serious TV going on except Memphis at that point. Uh, It was WCW, WWF, and nobody else had television really still, did they? Maybe it was Portland still around in 91. Well, I v- mean, that- yeah, VWA had some public access stuff going on. Well, I'm talking about serious television, actually, that, you know, that you would actually have uh, being a booker would be a, a job rather than just something you did well, one one night after dinner. Exactly. But for instance, Scazzari, Eddie Gilbert doesn't show up. Scazzari doesn't say anything to you. You were coming off that run <laughs> with the NWA. Well, no, because everybody else had already gone up and said, don't worry, we'll handle it first. See, because they wanted to. They wanted to be bookers. They wanted to run the show. Remember, that was when Mike Leno was there with Sabu and the Sheik. Leno's <laughs> running around in a fucking turban with a sword, going to ringside with the Sheik. <laughs> Nothing made any sense. Scazzari booked Stan to work in his heavyweight title tournament and me to do color commentary. And when we got to the building, first thing he told me was, well, I said, what I asked, I said, where are the announce position? He said, well, we're going to do it in post. I said, what? He got a TV crew, but he forgot to get enough audio people that they could actually have audio in the building for the, for the announcers. There was no place for the, for the announcers to announce. And I said, you're going to do it in post. Where's post going to be? So, well, it'll be up here, but don't worry. I'll bring you back up. So he was $1,500 in 1991. What is that today? Probably three or four grand is 1500 bucks for me to come up and do the color commentary on his show and manage Stan in the title tournament. And then automatically, as soon as I get there, I find out I'm not doing any commentary. He didn't want any money back. 
he's going to pay me again and bring me up again. Of course, that never happened. <clears throat> I think a year or two later, somehow somebody got the tapes and circulated the tapes. I don't think they ever did have commentary on them. Uh, and then the tournament, some way or another, Stan got to the second round, I think it was, without ever winning a first-round match. And then I think it was Paul Orndorff we put over in the second round who then went back out and won another match to get to... The tournament didn't even make any sense. And all the guys were making shit up in the back as they went along because there was, like I said, when Eddie... That was the big thing is that they did a house show the night before the TV taping, which was, as I believe in, as I remember in Lowell, Massachusetts, was it not? I think. That sounds right. Anyway, Eddie didn't show up at the house show, and but he had sent the formats, and Scazzari had sent him his check, because I guess, all right, fuck it. Um... And then we didn't make the house show even though we were booked on that because the idiots didn't send the plane tickets in time. Because I was on the phone the day of the, sh the the house show, the day before the taping with his assistant going, what What do you think? You think this is, we're just going to go to the fucking airport and ask for a goddamn ticket? We were supposed to have tickets three weeks ago. If there's not a ticket on my fucking doorstop, by tomorrow morning, I ain't going to the goddamn airport because you're all full of shit and I don't believe you. So he somehow Federal Express expedited Stan and our plane tickets so we could leave the next morning and go to the airport. Otherwise, I wouldn't leave in the house. And then we get there and find out that Eddie no-showed and that everybody's gone, gone into business for themselves. And Scazzari had a pack of checks in his hand. Not a checkbook, just a naked pack of checks. No register or anything. And some guy would come and say, well, you promised me so-and-so. Okay, here's a check. Some guy came and said, well, I've got to eat. You need to pay for my food. Okay, here's a check. And some guy, well, the, the hotel didn't have my right. Here's a check. He was just writing checks to people for whatever the fuck they asked for. And I was like, what the... F and and But that's, I, I think, is that where I first met Tammy Sitch. She was with Candido, standing outside the locker room door because it was the male locker room. And I, I think, passed a little conversation with her because I knew Candido from Dennis. I think that may be the first time I talked to her. Pettisino never asked you about booking? When he was still having the hopes that this was real? Oh, you know what? He sure did. He sure did. I, I Joe, I, I, I can't remember what I told him now. <laughs> Because he didn't know about Smoky Mountain Wrestling either. I was said, nobody, while everybody else was setting up shit with their millionaires from Nairobi or wherever, I was actually doing real shit on a budget and with a real backer and not telling anybody about it. All right, Jim. Well, let's uh, tell people about a few more questions or answer a few more questions for people. Several people have been sending in this article that just went up today on the Wrestling Observer website. Darby Allen reveals he paid $12,000 to get out of a contract to join AEW. <laughs> Here's the article. Uh, and apparently he took out a loan to make the payment. Here's a quote from an interview. At the time, I was signed with another little promotion. And then the moment I heard Cody was interested, long story short, I paid $12,000 to get out of my contract. I took out a loan. And then I remember I used to hit up Cody every day. 
just blow up his phone. I just heard there was this new company starting up, and then this is before TV was even talked about. I was like, this is crazy. All I heard when they were, all I heard when they were promoting it was the word creative freedom. And I was like, that's where I need to be. Boy, you know what? This guy, that's correct. The place he needs to be is creative freedom. I can see that a mile away. At the time, I was kind of being groomed to go to NXT, and I saw the writing on the wall. This was back when 205 Live was a thing, if you remember 205 Live. And I was like, hell fucking no. I'm not going to go there and do that. It was a feeling I had to go to AEW. I was just so drawn to it. And apparently at the time, he was signed to Evolve, the World Wrestling Network, which was Gabe Sapolsky, who did get involved with NXT. So people were trying to tie that together, what exactly he was saying. But what do you think of the idea he paid $12,000 to get out of that contract? Well, okay, that's... Well, if it was $12,000, what was he on? 300 bucks a week or not, not even 250 But um, I know obviously Evolve didn't have, you know, the wherewithal to guarantee big contracts. But I was going to say, what's the big deal? Because I thought, okay, AEW is offering him a deal, so he just has to get out of this other thing. So he pays them twelve grand and ends up, what's AEW paying him? Three, four grand a week, probably. Um, Tony overpaid everybody when he first signed them. So I would think that Darby Allen wouldn't be on anything less than a couple hundred grand a year for God's sake. Cause that would be five to 10 times what he was making elsewhere. And that fits. Um, but it did take a little bit of, of balls to do that. If they hadn't actually made him an offer yet, that's the thing. If AEW is saying, well, we'll give you 250 grand a year or whatever, just uh, get out of this other deal. Okay, here's 12 grand. Now I got 250. But just to pay, borrow 12 grand and pay 12 grand to get out of a contract on the theory that you want to go somewhere else, that's a more ballsy move. And then I guess he was beating Cody's phone up trying to get him to bring him in. But I mean, he made the right decision for both parties than not going to NXT. Because we've said Darby has that goofy, weird charisma that people want to like him, and he's the underdog, and he's smaller, or whatever. But in it, it would have been completely ridiculous. Next to Johnny fucking same face, he looks like a emaciated concentration camp survivor. So there's no way 205 live. Darby wouldn't weigh 205 pounds if he was riding a horse, and you included the fucking horse. So it would have been a complete dead end for him in NXT, especially when Vince was still around for all these past several years. So I, you know, I think he did the right thing overall. I thought where you were going with news on Darby Allen, did you see the video of him jumping over his fucking house? I did see that. Yes. Okay. Here's the thing. And the reason I said I laughed at creative freedom We've established that Darby Allen is the only one of these guys who actually at least makes his dives and shit look good. And he's an underdog and he's got that weirdness about him that some people like, especially the young folks. And, you know, for all those reasons, he's better than most of the other jolly jokers around there. But he's still a complete fucking imbecile. He's still a complete, irresponsible fucking imbecile. 
both irresponsible to himself and to his business. You know, he's always doing his shit where he jumps off a fucking bridge or he jumps something in a car or on a motorcycle or whatever. Or he takes some ridiculous bump. Or remember the time he put himself in a body bag and then fell off a shelf? I've, it didn't look as, as really as impressive as all the other shit he's done, but he just rolled off a shelf in a bag. But he's apparently a fucking idiot, really, in real life, and does this shit for fun and has no concept of the fact that he's not only going to have a short wrestling career because he does all this unnecessary shit that he doesn't even have to do, even as a little guy trying to get over, he goes way too far with it. But then it on the video, it looks like he's got a nice little house somewhere. I don't know where he lives, wherever it is in the wilds of New Mexico, whatever the fuck. Pacific Northwest. Okay, it's a nice little house. And what he's done is he has brought in truckloads of dirt and dumped them in his front yard to make a ramp. And then he's got fucking camera people there and other people that are watching this thing. And what what was the vehicle? It was a was it a van or a truck or I don't remember. What the, some vehicle he drives and he runs up the ramp and jumps over his house and crashes on the other side, just head first. I mean, jumps a fucking house. What is he, 50 feet in the air? He jumps 80 feet and crashes the vehicle into a bunch of other junked vehicles that he's hauled into his backyard. He ruined his front yard. He fucking almost, he risk, did risk his life and almost killed himself. He obviously went to the expense of getting not only the dirt, but these other vehicles, even from a junkyard, it costs something just to do that stupid thing that he did. He didn't get paid for it. He didn't win an enormous cash prize. He just wanted to jump his house and risk his life. So, <sighs> so that I'm sure that Darby Allen loves creative freedom. And I'm sure the undertaker that buries him in a year or two after he kills himself will love the creative freedom of trying to put the little prick's body back together in the right order so that they can have an open casket ceremony. We certainly hope here at the show that Darby Allen lives, just for the record. But with that, Jim, let's move on to another couple questions. I didn't say which, which outcome I was rooting for. I just said which one I'm predicting. Jim, this question was sent in the corny drive through at gmail.com from George. And actually, George is one of our guest artists, so check that out. He did the uh, artwork for you, talking about the spear and other protected finishes on the official Jim Cornette YouTube channel. But here's his question. So, so George Spear, I wonder if he's brothers of Dale Spear. No, different Spear altogether. And uh, oh. hello, Dale Spear, we'll say that. But here's George's question, George Spear, George, not Spear. <laughs> With Vince McMahon oh, retiring, up. are you, you okay? Motherfucker. You motherfucker, you finally done it to me. <laughs> I just... <laughs> 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 don't die. For the record, we don't out, want you to out die. My right nostril. <laughs> <laughs> All right, what's what's George Spears' question? With Vince McMahon retiring from WWE, we've already seen changes in WWE, such as released talent coming back, 
and the reintroduction of certain banned words. Is it possible we could see moves like the pile driver come back in Triple H's regime? One thing I've noticed in WWE, as recently as last week's Raw, is that while the pile driver is banned, the Canadian destroyer is not. <laughs> A flipping pile driver that seems more dangerous as the person taking it is essentially required to do a backflip and land on their head. <laughs> the Canadian Destroyer was recently used by Edge since Vince has left. But prior to Vince's retirement, stars like Rey Mysterio have used the move, and even Adam Cole has his Panama Sunrise. Is it trust in the talent that allows it? Or did Vince maybe not realize what the move was? And again, the question was why the pile driver is banned, but not the Canadian Destroyer. Well, I think the Canadian Destroyer is such a fucking obviously phony, goofy, stupid looking fucking move that I don't think Vince ever took it seriously that anybody was going to get hurt, even though technically it is more dangerous than a properly done pile driver. I've never seen a Canadian destroyer that looked like it actually hurt anybody. And most people don't sell them to begin with, but it's, and it's, it's phony visually to begin with. There's no way it can happen. And so obviously the guy's doing his own backflip, but I think that's the, the pile driver and, or the, you know, the high angle, you know, belly to back or a brain buster, anything where people are picked up and dropped pretty much straight down or mostly directly on their heads after the rash of neck injuries and spinal fusions and you know, top guys being out for long periods of time. Austin was, you know, one of the biggest uh, issues with, you know, a neck issue. That's what really Vince got, you know, overly concerned about it because of was injuries. And obviously everybody's going to go, well, Undertaker's always done the tombstone. Well, Undertaker's always been the exception to the rule. When you get that over for that long, you have that much respect from everybody and you prove you can do something without hurting people, then you get to do it. And other people don't. Oh, golly, is that fair? No, it's not. That's because stars can do more shit and get away with more shit than regular normal fucking ass wipes. Get over it. Uh, but for the most part, they, they, you know, banned that because they didn't want more constant career-ending neck injuries. I always think when you ban a move for real instead of a work, that's bad because when you ban a move because of a work, you're still doing the move. You're just doing it behind the referee's back to get heat or whatever. When you ban a move, the pile driver is one of the greatest moves in the history of wrestling. And it's something that if you got a guy that knows how to do it, Paul Orndorff, Bob Sweetan, Jerry Lawler, we go on and on. Then you got something. But when you let every jack-off do it, just like anything else, then it becomes a problem. So I don't believe that those moves should have been banned. I think they should have been moves that had to be approved and used judiciously in certain circumstances by certain people, and then it had been fine. But, but yeah, it's totally nonsensical that the Canadian destroyer wouldn't be banned and a pile driver is, except that I don't think that Vince ever took it seriously. And I think the guys were like, well, if nobody says anything, we're going to keep doing it. 
I would have, you know, the first time I saw it was Petey Williams and TNA. And I was just a lowly agent and producer. So I, it wasn't my call, but I would have said, no, no, this is the phoniest thing I've ever seen. Don't ever do this again, ever, anybody. But, um, in terms of banning moves because of potential injuries, I remember for a while the Death Valley driver was a move that no one could do. Obviously, we're talking about the pile driver. Well, now, and, and who fucked up the Death Valley driver enough to where people said you shouldn't do that? I'm trying to remember. I don't recall. Spicoli because how do you it, fuck Dream that up? Yeah, I don't know. But are there any moves that you would actually ban as a promoter, as a booker, just because you don't want the hassle of having to deal with an injury? Uh, well, besides ones that looked obviously phony, yes, that reverse Hurricane Rana where they go fucking backwards instead of forwards, I'd make that a finable offense because that's the stupidest thing I've ever seen. Uh, any apron bump, unless I saw it beforehand and was confident in the guys perpetrating it. I mean, at this point, anything through a table should probably just be done away with because if we take it away from them for a year or two and then they saw a table break, it would actually mean something again and get a huge pop like it used to instead of everybody going, ah, he wasn't really very far up in the air when he jumped off. So I I would take most furniture out of the equation except in main event angles and or stipulation matches Thumbtacks, if if I saw a thumbtack in your bag, that would be grounds for immediate expulsion and termination unless you had just come from your part-time job at a, a fucking office supply store. Expulsion. Expulsion. Get out of my fucking building. You know, the, it, it's, not the, it's not moves, it's stupid stunts that need to be done away with. Moves should be done by people who know how to do those moves properly so they look real instead of phony. But off the top of my head, if I was still uh, in charge of any locker room or promotion, I would drastically almost eliminate all the furniture and make what furniture was used look like it was there organically and became part of the scene accidentally. There would never be any thumbtacks. There were the phony looking moves and most of the gymnastics would be highly frowned upon in my environment. And, uh, and nobody would miss it after six weeks because you would have talented wrestlers doing interesting things. And so nobody would have to rely on the cheap crutch of just bashing somebody with a blunt instrument or breaking some shit. Well, before we break any more shit, a couple more questions, Jim. This one was sent to corny drive through at gmail.com from Josh. I know you guys are very critical of John Moxley's work. <laughs> I read years ago. I, I, you know, I'd even be more critical if I ever saw him do any of it. I haven't seen him work yet. I oh, read... Yeah. I read years ago that he works the way he does with weapons and blood, etc., because Terry Funk is his biggest influence. Oh, God. He asked WWE for permission to work like Terry years ago. Oh, God. And that has been the catalyst to his style ever since becoming, uh, excuse me, ever since considering, ever since, that has been the catalyst to his style ever since considering he used to be very technical, like William Regal. 
I'm guessing I think there should have been a period uh, should have been a comma after ever since something was wrong there. I'm guessing you don't think he is anything like Terry and neither do I, but just for entertainment and education for today's pro wrestlers, what makes these guys so different from one another? And again, here's a guy who all he saw was Terry Funk and ECW. And, you know, Marty Funk did show me a picture one time she took up there of Tori and Derry, of Dory and Terry wrapped up in barbed wire, not having a barbed wire match where the ropes had been replaced by barbed wire or there was ring or there was barbed wire around the ring post. You couldn't get out of the ring, but actually wrapped up all in barbed wire. And they're both in their fucking 50s. Now, what the fuck? But that's, it's the same thing with people seeing Mick Foley and wanting to be garbage deathmatch wrestlers because they're not smart enough to look deeper or seeing Rey Mysterio and thinking, I'm 5'2 and 135 pounds, so I can be a wrestler too because Rey Mysterio can. And now Plumber Moxley thinks he's Terry fucking Funk. And that's because these nitwits, I don't know if it's, just being born stupid or whether it's the effects of various habits they have of being concussed weekly or whatever the fuck Moxley's done to his brain, but they can't look past the cover to read the actual book. Yes. Terry Funk in the nineties was doing the ECW barbed wire stuff and breaking tables and went with cactus over in Japan and did the garbage death matches for a ridiculous amount of money. More than anybody's ever been paid to do death matches in the United States. But in the 80s, he was a territory worker who could have any kind of match. He had the double juice match and the wild chaos with Lawler. Or he could go 60 minutes with his brother Dory over in Japan in the tournament match. And nobody breaks a fucking rule because they're wrestling and they're brothers. Or in the 70s, he was the NWA world champion. And he could either be a heel or a babyface and wrestle without blood, without furniture. Every top name in the NWA or before that in the 60s. He's the young white meat babyface, kid brother of Dory Funk Jr. That's, you know, all the young girls in Amarillo love. He was around for 50 years, so he did different things at different times. But if all you can take away from Terry Funk, one of the great promos of all time, one of the great ring psychologists, one of the, one of the most intelligent guys in wrestling about where it was heading and what had gone on, the son of a legendary promoter. But all Plummer Moxley sees is that Oh, yeah, Terry Funk was wild and broke furniture and set himself on fire and used a branding iron. So I'm going to drink blood and gargle bones because I'm weird like that. Fuck, he's not from fucking Cincinnati. He's with all the other goddamn bums on the side of the road in Newport. I don't get the reference. That's because you ain't from there. But let me tell you, anyway, point is, no, John Moxley is about as much Terry Funk as I am. And you can't be Terry Funk because there was only one. 
And for all that Moxley, I guess maybe he scares these pussies that he shares the locker room with and or the pussies that are good. Because right now, to be honest with you, I look at the front row in the AEW shows and I wouldn't be scared of those fans if it was Louisiana again. I wouldn't be scared of those people jumping the rail and kicking my ass. If I were them, I'd be afraid I'd jump over there and kick theirs. Because the fans aren't intimidating anymore just like the wrestlers aren't intimidating anymore, but I've seen Terry Funk go out into an arena, confront face-to-face, nose-to-nose, grown adult men that he's never met before and that hate his fucking guts and back them down with his fucking expression. If Moxley tried to do that, any one of these fat, neck-bearded fucks would just slap that piece of shit in the face. He's not intimidating. He's playing a part. He's playing a role. He's trying to be Terry Funk. He can't. So, no, I don't see it, and that's the difference. Terry Funk was Terry Funk. John Plummer Moxley is a not very intimidating, balding, middle-aged-looking, prematurely-aged fuck that can't work and has no psychology and does good promos if you can overlook the fact that here's this bum off the street talking like he's a goddamn vampire and a mass murderer. Sorry. Ain't no Terry Funk there. If Moxley lasts 50 years in the wrestling business, uh, let me know. Then he's Terry Funk. Jim, our final question here this week, sent to cornydrivethrough at gmail.com from Guy in Durban, South Africa. With AEW having too much blood, courtesy mostly of one John Moxley, <laughs> and WWE still restricting blood. And by the way, when the other wrestlers are joking about, hey, I don't want to look at you sideways, you might bleed on me. Can this fucking idiot take a hint? When even the boys are saying, yeah, yeah you're overdoing the blood thing, pal. Go ahead. Well, back to Guy from Durban, South Africa's question. With AEW having too much blood, courtesy mostly of one John Moxley, and WWE still restricting blood, I have to ask, have there been any notable wrestlers that Jim knows of who outright refuse to get color? Oh, good question. You know what? <laughs> There's one I remember right off the top of my head, and they're in the news because they're going to be on the pay-per-view, I guess, coming up. Uh, Shelly and Sabin, the Motor City Machine Guns. They were in TNA... And I liked those guys and they worked very hard and they were always very nice and respectful. And as I would, sometimes I'd show them some old midnight express double team shit that they could do their take on. Cause they were much more, you know, aerial, but they were, they were trying to bring them up from the, you know, lower card to higher position. And they had them do it a pro program with Bubba Ray and Devon team 3d. And Dutch came to me at Universal one day at the tapings to say, well, guess what? I said, what? He said, just tried to go over the match with the Motor City Machine Guns and the Dudleys. And the guns told me, oh, we don't get juice. What? We, we don't get 
juice. You know, it's our, I think Dutch said, I don't know, this is a quote, but Dutch said, he said, I think it's their bodies are, are their temples and they don't, what, what the, the point is, I know some people are wondering, why are you laughing? I'm laughing because here was an underneath babyface tag team that was scheduled for a push to be, you know, lifted up the cards and they're working with the Dudleys and they were just astonished that somebody was going to ask him at some point, get a little color and they refused to do it. And I mean, it wasn't like we'll walk out if we don't, you know, at that point, everybody was softening up and I'm sure somebody told, well, you know, Dixie will get upset if we try to make anybody get juice. That I'm, I, I'm not saying I was ever a fan of doing it. I did it about six or seven times in my career. And actually, now that I think about it, I called for myself to do it as many times as everybody else called for me, for me to do it put together. But it wasn't like it was something to do for fun. But if the situation calls for it, get some fucking juice. And in a match with the Dudleys in TNA where the guns were the baby faces, they should have got some juice. But I'm trying to think of some other time where somebody said, you know, Coco Ware told Lawler one time and the whole fucking locker room erupted. And this story was told around Coco switches heel and he's working with Lawler. Lawler's the baby face. And Coco had been elevated from a, you know, kind of a middle card babyface position to a top heel. He's being managed by Jimmy Hart. So they have the big no DQ return match after Coco's turned on Lawler. And Lawler said, okay, and Coco, I'll make my comeback, get a little color. And Coco said, King, I'm black. They won't be able to see it. Why don't you throw powder on me? You're not laughing. I've heard this one before. Oh, you've heard it. But it, well, boy, we heard we laughed every time we heard it. The thought of Coco. But <laughs> that don't don't I don't want to bleed, throw powder. They'll see it better. Um I'm trying to think of anybody else that's ever just said, no, I ain't gonna that don't work for me, brother. I mean, in some in some cases, you'd have a guy, oh, I don't think it's time for me to get juice, or I don't want to get juice in this match, but not like scoff at the whole fucking idea. There's only, there's been a, I mean, even Bruno bled quite a bit. There's been a handful of top guys. You never saw Steamboat bleed, did you? After his initial, when he was a young, young guy in the Carolinas, yes. But then later on in his, well, he spent most of the time in. No, you never saw him bleed after a while. WWF and then WCW, but they were still bleeding in WCW at the point. Anyway, there's been some, but. I'm trying to think of anybody that just said, no, I'm never, ever going to do that. Did they use fake blood at all when you were still on the creative team for WWE? Yes. Did they start times. using that for Sean yet? Um, no. <clears throat> no, wait a minute. I answered that question too soon. I don't think we used any of it in the WWE when I was on the creative team. I think I saw that in TNA. I think is where I saw it first. I don't know that Sean, I see, here's another thing. There was never fake blood in wrestling. 
and everybody may have thought it was, but you tried to go as far as you could in the opposite direction to prove that it wasn't. But remember the the primetime Sunday uh, episode of the NBC primetime Sunday was a news magazine in the late 70s, early 80s. They did a, a story on Memphis wrestling. And I remember all everybody involved in the Memphis office was pissed because they were told it wasn't going to be a hit piece. It was going to be a piece about the popularity of wrestling. But then Tom Snyder has to do the editorial comments and say, well, everybody knows it's all, you know, a show. And they had a match with Lawler and Dundee in the Coliseum. And they had the footage of the match. And you know, I know, Lawler and Dundee never used fake blood. However they got it was one thing, but they didn't use fake blood. But the voiceover from Tom Snyder on this footage was, Blood is often real in wrestling. These small scars can be hidden by combing the hair forward. But on this night, real blood wasn't enough, so hidden capsules of red paint were used. Okay, there is a way to make blood, and it doesn't involve using red paint. And there's no way that you could ever have used a blood capsule for a head wound because there wouldn't be enough of it. How are you going to take out a fucking time-release Alka-Seltzer capsule and break it on your fucking head? We've talked about the fact that when people bleed from the mouth, it can be real blood. Or it can be the gimmick stuff. I prefer the real shit done the right way. But the reason that it made me think that NBC Primetime Sunday planted this information was because they had footage of the apron of the ring after that match and the fans going up and feeling it and it being, it didn't either look like blood and it didn't look like blood when you got it on your hands. It looked like paint. And I think they planted the paint. <laughs> because how else do you explain that? When I was a kid, all the fans after the matches used to go up and stick their fingers in the blood on the apron or dip the program and get some blood, some of Bill Dundee's blood or some of Jackie Fargo's blood. I've got a bunch of it here. I've got a paper with... Lawler's blood, a piece of paper with Dundee's blood, a piece of paper with the Mongolian Stomper and Bob Armstrong's blood. And it was always real blood. But on the time that the NBC cameras were there, it wasn't blood. What the fuck happened? These are the questions that keep me up at night. So point being, where was the original question? The question was... Wrestlers who refused to bleed in fake blood. They are few and far between, and there was never fake blood until the modern era when civilians and comedy writers and special effects people and everybody got involved and then decided that would be a thing that you should do. And the only time that I have ever uh, engaged in that activity was, remember in Ring of Honor, one time when I got my tooth knocked out? With the CCW feud, right? Yes. Yeah. I will reveal now that that is the tooth that has the big giant Mac Daddy of a post in it. And it had come out for, I think that was the third time while I was eating chicken wings. 
And I called Gabe Sapolsky and I said, well, I'm missing a front tooth for this weekend show. What do you want to do about it? And he came up with a deal where they would be fighting in the background. And it was low key trying to draw back a chair and whack somebody else that allegedly whacked me in the face. And we had footage in the back handheld. And when he drinks, draws the chair back or whatever, bam, you hear the sound and you hear me. Oh, and I spit what appeared to be blood. And then I came out and did a live interview with no tube, no front tooth in my face. And the people went insane because they saw I had no tooth and they saw I was bleeding and they saw I was pissed off about it. And that got over. I've spoiled it now, but it was 15 years ago. But that's all you need to, I mean, you know, in that situation, yes, I don't mind a little creative special effects, you know, but uh, when you're doing a match in front of people and you try to use gimmick blood, which they tried to do that in OVW here in Louisville after I left. And I was so fucking embarrassed because you cannot have blood in Kentucky because state commission rules because of the garbage deathmatch wrestlers ruining everything for everybody. So I just didn't ever do blood unless we were at a spot show in Indiana. I was going to tape it and put it back on TV show because I refused to do fake blood or refused to get the young talent that we were training in the mindset that fake blood was okay in a wrestling match. So we just never did it. All right, well, you know what? We went a while today, so songs will return next week. And with that, the drive-thru is closed. I feel like that may be the most successful Kalimba run we've ever had here on the show. I was about to say that was probably the dreariest Kalimba run, because there was no major clinker involved, and it just kind of sat there. Well... You can hear more clinkers this weekend on the Jim Cornette Experience, wherever you find <laughs> oh, your favorite Oh, we got plenty podcasts. of clinkers. We got, we got AEW on Wednesday night, and whoever gets in a fight backstage, we've got more on Raw. We have the rivals of, between uh, Eddie Guerrero and Rey Mysterio that I did oh. not chance to peruse. As Hold on. Yet. That'll be good, because it's the vintage stuff. No, but... If it's just going to be them recapping that feud over the paternity of Dominic, do we want to watch this? Well, we'll get to see more Eddie Guerrero highlights. Yeah. I mean, the WCW stuff is great. Yeah. Well, there you go. But anyway, we got all kinds of stuff on the experience. And then next week on the drive-thru, we're going to have to pull up and park because we're going to have multiple pay-per-views to talk about. Ladies and gentlemen, there is a chance next week you're going to have a very cranky couple of shows. <laughs> In fact, I'd put money on it. Of course, you can find the drive through and the experience wherever you find your favorite podcast. Get access to the archives. Patreon.com slash Cornette. $5 a month gets you access to the archive going back to the beginning in 2013. Patreon.com slash Cornette. Check out all the amazing Travis Heckle artwork and all of our amazing guest artists. Find out more information about them and see their work on the official Jim Cornette YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search for Jim Cornette. It'll be the very first thing that pops up. Full episodes, clips of episodes, omnibus collections, and so much more. The official Jim Cornette YouTube channel. Follow Jim on Twitter at TheJimCornette. You can follow me on Twitter at GreatBrianLast. You can hear me on the 605 Super Podcast at 605pod.com, available wherever you find 
your favorite podcast. Subscribe to The Wrestling News, Arcadian Vanguard's The Wrestling News today, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Of course, don't forget about Cornet's collectibles at jimcornet.com, despite Hodgkiss Featherbottom finally cracking under the pressure. He'll be back. He'll, he'll, it'll only be five to ten days, and he'll be back around society. But these figures won't be back, so buy them today at jimcornet.com. Well, the good thing is he's getting it out of the way now, because the figures don't go on sale till September 17th. At jimcornet.com. He'll be, he'll be back by then. He'll be healthy by then. So will Fanny and Felcher. I'm even, I'm thinking about buying them prosthetic arms just for this occasion. I don't know about that, but of course, the drive-thru is brought to you by the law office of Stephen P. New, 888-692. I don't know why you cracked me up with that. 8084, get even with Stephen at newlawoffice.com. But until next week on the drive-thru for the all-out review, and this weekend on The Experience, for Jim Cornette, I'm the great Brian Last. Tally-ho! Well, it's Jim Cornette's drive-thru. Yes, it's Jim Cornette's drive-thru. Please shut up and listen while Corny is shooting. Yes, while Corny is shooting on pig-fucking Putin and those outlaw macho fucks. Joey Ryan, the young bucks, the rednecks and dumb fucks, and them dork order bum fucks. And then there's Jelly Janella and Santino Marella, the boogeyman, the boogeyman, the boogeyman. Corny's drive-thru. Corny's drive-thru. Corny's drive-thru. Well, it's all elite wrestling. Tony Khan is investing his billions of dollars in some dumb cosplay wrestlers. Yeah, they think they are wrestlers in video games just like Kenny Omega. We pledge allegiance to the leader of the mighty cult of Cornets. And to the pro wrestling for which he stands. No blow up dolls, kick spots, or dance routines with blood, sellouts, and shoot angles for all. And have you heard about Riho? She weighs 45 kilos and she's their champion. She's a Japanese schoolgirl. All the Japanese schoolgirls like Kenny Omega love to play with his Sega. Yeah, they play with his Sega. You need to sue the guy for you, Steven Pienu, everybody. Corny's drive-thru. Corny's drive-thru. Corny's drive-thru. Corny's drive-thru. And now, here are your hosts, Jim Cornette and the great Brian Last.